Just a quick note before we get started, we are only able to do this podcast because of the support of you, our listeners. We'd like to thank each and every one of our Patreon donors that help keep this show going. Through Patreon, we are able to offer our supporters bonus content like many episodes and even the chance to program an episode with monthly donations that help us keep the lights on. If you're interested in joining our Patreon family, please click the link in the show notes. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and or comment on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. That helps us gain helpful insight about the show and boost our visibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller and the women that made them famous. We're your hosts, Lars Celeste Cannon and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we look at the 1974 Canadian holiday slasher, Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark and written by A. Roy Moore, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulia, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin, Marion Waldman, Lynn Griffin, and John Saxon. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A group of sorority sisters receive threatening phone calls and are eventually stalked and murdered by a deranged killer during the Christmas season. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We're going to talk about both the 1974 version and the 2019 remake. So if you care about that, go watch the movies and come back. We'll be waiting, but we will give you a warning before we talk about the 2019 remake. So if you want to stop listening at that point to not spoil it, we'll let you know. So this movie came out in 1974, and that year saw the IRA begin a bombing campaign on mainland Britain. Uh, They bombed the Tower of London on July 17th in the House of Parliament and pubs in Birmingham. Richard Nixon became the first U.S. president forced to resign. Isabel Perón, Juan Perón's third wife, becomes president of Argentina after the death of her husband on July 1st. She became the first woman president in the world. The Sears Tower in Chicago becomes the world's tallest building. Stephen King publishes his debut novel, Carrie. The largest series of tornadoes in history hits 13 U.S. states and one Canadian province. The number one song was The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand, and the number one movie was Blazing Saddles. And we have with us today a very special guest who last time she was with us was also around the holidays. And we want to welcome back Laura Ray. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me again. Uh, I've missed you guys, and I'm, I'm excited to be back. Well, we've missed you, and we're so excited to have you here. I think you might be considered a frequent flyer on the Fatal Femmes podcast. Woohoo! Because I, I love think that. you are our most. Are you our most? Our most? What am I trying to say? Yeah, I think you're our most frequent. Our guest. most frequent guest. I could not. I'm like our most most. I I, I like just. Are you our most? I was you like, are yeah. The most. I'm, I'm, you're the I'm your most. That's awesome. I love that. I've, I've loved so much every time I've gotten to come on your wonderful podcast. So thank you. Oh, thank you. But this is a special episode because you actually brought this movie to our attention. So it 
feels only right to have you on here to talk about it. I remember when the remake was coming out last year, I think it was at your Christmas party, and I said, oh, I want to see that. And you were like, okay, you have to watch the original one. (laughs) Yes, I... I'm so glad to introduce people to this movie because um, it's one of my favorite horror films. And I honestly think it's the reason that I, I think it's the reason I like horror films to begin with. I saw it when I was pretty young. I was 14. Um, My dad and my brother showed it to me um, and it scarred me because it is quite frightening. Um, But I also really think it sort of started me like really kind of into the genre and being interested in, um, exploring more horror films, um, particularly slashers uh, like this one. So I'm so glad that you guys enjoyed it and that, that we can talk about it today. Yeah, now you just watched this for the first time the other day, right? Yes, I had my first and second viewings consecutively on Sunday because I nice. also thought we were recording on Sunday, so nothing like leaving to the last minute. I got my days all mixed up, but <laughs> I watched it once and I was really surprised by it. I had no expectations going in. Laura knows movies from the 70s are not that's not my favorite time period of movies. So, I really did not have any expectations and I loved it. Yay! Cuz I didn't know all the history of it going in. I looked it up after the first viewing. But seeing so many tropes that are now so common in horror, but it was done so well I was like this either is the first time this was done or this is the first time they did it right because it just it flowed really well everything felt really organic and it really was still a creepy movie like I definitely got got creeped out several times yeah and then I watched it again with Carl like as soon as he got home I was like we need to watch this and it turns out he saw it in his childhood I'm like how did your mom let you watch this with the language? He goes, oh, no, it was my uncle. (laughs) Yeah, I think he said he was like 12 when he watched it. I'm like, did it scare you? And he said, yes. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, and I don't think my mom knew that my my dad and my brother showed it to me because I think she would have probably um, not approved. (laughs) I I was going to say really quickly, my so my parents, I want to like attribute them to like you know, introducing me to it because they, in the seventies, they went on a date and they were not going to see this movie. And it turned out like, I think the story is that this was the only one that was playing. And so they're like, okay, we'll give it a shot. And they loved it. And they were both like terrified. And so like their whole lives, they've like shown people this film and it's not super well known as you guys know um, either. Um, Most of the time when I bring it up to people, they, they haven't heard of or haven't seen it, haven't heard of it, or maybe heard of it because there's been remakes. Yeah. And it's so funny that it's not well known because It really is the first in a lot of ways and set horror films down the road that they eventually went. And so a lot of things that we now expect in horror movies are a result of this one. Absolutely. So if y'all haven't seen this and you are a physical media collector, Scream Factory has an amazing two-disc collector's edition that has... I mean, this thing is stacked. It has features and features and features. It's got two audio commentaries. It has Black Christmas Legacy, on-screen Black Christmas, archival interviews with actors Olivia Hussey, Marco Kidder, Art Hinkle, and John Saxton, theatrical trailer, TV radio spots, interview with actor Art Hinkle, 12 Days of Black Christmas documentary and I mean there's even more stuff that's just not listed on the back here so if y'all are interested in that at all I highly recommend picking it up so this 
movie was inspired by the urban legend, The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs, and a series of murders that took place in Quebec. The writer wrote the screenplay under the title Stop Me, and there's been some speculation that this movie is directly responsible for other holiday-themed movies like My Bloody Valentine, Friday the 13th, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Halloween even so much that, and this this is an interview I saw with the director before he passed, sadly. Apparently, John Carpenter asked him, what, like, if you were going to do a sequel, what would you do? And he said, oh, well, I would have the killer escape from a mental institution and come back after Jess okay. and kind of take the story from there. And so John Carpenter was like, huh, okay, <laughs> that sounds kind of interesting. So he kind of, he took some seeds of that and wrote Halloween and also the director, um, Bob Clark, said he would call the sequel Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I read that too, and I thought thought that was fascinating. <laughs> so this started a whole trend. Plus, it was one of the first ones to use the the killer is in the house. That was then, you know, used in When a Stranger Calls and Scream and mm-hmm. how many other movies. Mm-hmm. I think it also was, um, and I'll need to double check this, but the article I read, I know it's one of the first that ever used the the point of view of the killer, where yeah. we as the audience are in the point of view of, of the killer in multiple scenes. Um, John Carpenter did like kind of directly pull from that in the first Halloween, because like one of the first scenes in, in, in Halloween, the original, were in, were in the eyes of Michael Myers. And so I know... It was either the first or one of the very first, at least the one that was like the most influential uh, in doing that, um, which I think is really cool because it's it's a very unsettling thing to to watch to be in the the eyes of the person that's about to do some terrible stuff. <laughs> yes, and the fact that we never see really who he is. You know, we get like that one shot of the eye, but that mm-hmm. that's about it. So we don't get the motive. We don't get why he's doing it. You know, we get some insight, but yeah, it's not, it's not, it's never spelled out. It, right. Kind of like in all those like old black and white movies where they're like, he's a homicidal maniac. It, and there's not like, why or how did he become this way? It's just, He's a homicidal maniac, and we must run. And this is the right. closest that I've ever seen to somebody actually kind of being a homicidal maniac. Because in all of those movies, you find out, like, why they're doing it. But this one, you get a little bit through his phone calls, but that's all. Yeah, you. it definitely leaves you to piece it together. Yeah, and, and that, to me, is one of the scariest aspects of it. To me, the things that you don't see in a horror film are often the most frightening. And so that that's what's always stuck with me about this film. Another thing that this did was it kind of gave you the twist up front because you know that he's in the house and he's hiding in the <laughs> attic, which is usually like at the end, oh, he was in the mm-hmm. house the whole time, but we know right up front. And th- to me, that's mm-hmm. terrifying because you know he's going to strike, but you don't know where or how. Right. And we have this information that nobody else that we're following, um, yeah. aside, of course, from the killer, has. Like, we as the audience have a really powerful piece of information that no one else has. So we're just watching these poor, you know, uh, sorority sisters, these poor women. Um, and, and there's nothing we can do except just hope that they make it out alive, which we'll talk about all that later. Yeah. <laughs> 
we're watching them come to the real the revelation of mm-hmm. what we know and that's we terrifying know. i know because we can't help them <laughs> yes it's literally like you're just sitting there and you want to yell at the screen it's like look behind turn around mm-hmm mm-hmm One thing that I think is interesting is that the director of this, Bob Clark, he also directed A Christmas Story. Yes! Isn't that wild? Isn't that crazy? We said the same thing. So (laughs) wild. When I found that out, I was like, they're both such amazing movies, but they're so different, which is incredible. (laughs) But honestly, you can see it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You can see it just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to go back and watch Christmas Story, but it makes sense. Yeah. I wonder if he really liked Christmas or if it just kind of ended up that he did those two. He's like, guess this is my thing now. I read that um, John, I think John Carpenter and others were trying to encourage him to do another horror film. And he was like, nah, I'm good. I'm like done. Which is, he, he did such an incredible job that um, it's surprising that he was just sort of like, nah, I'm cool. I don't need to do another one. I did, um, I did it well. Check off the list. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. He also directed a movie called Loose Cannons, which I'm going to have to see, but it's considered like one of the worst movies of the 90s. Oh, wow. I've never Uh, heard of it. Gene Hackman and... uh, I've never heard of it. That's crazy. Oh, Dan Aykroyd. An unconventional cop who doesn't take any bull is paired up with an amazing <laughs> detective to capture some powerful criminals, but the cop soon realizes that his by-the-book partner has split personality disorder. It has a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Whoa! <laughs> That's pretty hardcore. It has a nine rating on here. Oh, okay. So apparently audience liked it, but there's no critic reviews. But anyway, we can go ahead and jump into this one. While Lara's preparing, I'm just going to prepare you, Lara Ray, and our audience for these notes that I have taken because I was just mindlessly jotting things down as they came to my pretty little head while I watched this, and I didn't read them back until about five minutes before we got on with you. So, yeah, they don't make a lot of sense, and they're just kind of funny, so we're all just going to experience them together. And I'm not quite sure where some of them, what was happening in the movie when I took some of these notes. That's how I am too. And honestly, half the time I can't even read my own handwriting. Um, Because you just, I just don't, I don't write the way that I used to. Like I'm, I'm typing all the time these days. And so my handwriting has gotten atrocious. (laughs) My handwriting starts pretty and then it just, just escalates down or (laughs) de-escalates. It starts nice. It's like, oh, this is nice penmanship. And by the last page, I'm like, what is that word? (laughs) I totally understand. Set the scene. So we open on the sorority house at night with Christmas lights and Silent Night is playing. And it's lovely and quiet. And you can see through the windows that a party's going on. But already, you can already tell that this movie is deliciously 70s. Just... Everything that is happening is so 70s. Even the font, everything. It's so even the the, uh, architecture of the house. Yes, like I'm like this is this is 70s. Mm -hmm. And we see the point of view of a person, and we don't know who this person is. And they're sneaking around the house and looking in the window, and you kind of see people walking around. Yeah, and then you hear somebody say, "Who left the door open?" And the unseen person climbs up 
the lattice work or whatever it is. Yeah, but the way they're climbing up, it's just like a hand barely touching. It's like a hand barely touching like the <laughs> lattice work. And so I'm like, okay, first of all, how are you getting a grip to climb? So that's just a very small observation. You want to know something crazy about that? Yes. So the camera guy had this special like rigging thing made up. Because you know how big cameras were back in those days. And they had to wear it on them somehow. So he had it on his shoulder. And he made a special swivel thing so that he could, while he was climbing, he could like lift it and to make the camera look up. Oh, my God. Oh, So wow. that's how he did that. So it's actually the cameraman with this giant camera climbing up the lattice work. Is it his shaky breath that we're hearing? Because I would be laboriously breathing if I had a 70s <laughs> movie camera strapped to me. It it's might so be. Weird. I don't know. They might have remixed in some sound. <laughs> no, and that would make sense if it's like he wasn't purposely, perfectly grabbing the lattice work because it just looked like this very half-hearted attempt to grab. He's probably just trying not to fall off. He's like, guys, I'm just trying to do my job. <laughs> That's a really good thing to point out, like how how much more difficult things were, you know, back then. How how you know that there was a lot more um, that that had to be done like sort of manually and in in a very creative way. (laughs) Yes. We see this person climb into an open window in the attic. Full of all sorts of fun things. Attics and and basements, am I right? Like, let's get rid of all of them. Nothing good ever happens in an attic or a basement. That is such an excellent (laughs) point. And there's this really creepy rocking horse. Some of you might know what I'm talking about with this, but I recently watched Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and there's a super creepy rocking horse in that. So I have a whole new thing on rocking horses. Not a fan? Now. No, not a fan. In Hello, Mary Lou, the rocking horse grows like this human tongue, and it's just kind of like, at some point. I know Is that an 80s tongues? film? It's really weird. <laughs> is that an 80s film? That felt very 80s, what you just described. I think it is. It was also filmed in Canada. <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. Wow, they just, they just keep blessing us. Oh, no, it is an 80s film because my friends who run an 80s podcast covered it. The- yeah. Oh, is that Good Times, Great Movies? Yeah. Good Times, Great Movies. Check them out. So, yeah, I have a complicated relationship with rocking horses now. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sure it wasn't easy. (laughs) So the killer is in the attic with the rocking horse. And then we get to see what's happening with the party downstairs. And we immediately get to see a little bit of, of the types of people. So Barb is who we get introduced to first. And she's very loud, and she drinks a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaks her mind. And she gets a phone call. She has this line that I wrote it down because it was so great. So apparently she was supposed to spend Christmas with her mom, and that's not going to happen now. So she tells her mother that she is a gold-plated whore. I wrote that down, too. I didn't write that down, but I should have. That's amazing. I wrote it down. It's right here. Yes, Barb. That's hysterical. It's like, 
Mom's just trying to make her Christmas merry, Barb. <laughs> but it gives Barb. you a little insight into Barb. Like, I'm guessing she never talks about her dad, and this is the only thing we hear about her mom. So she doesn't apparently have a very good relationship with her parents, and she comes out and she's like, hey, does anybody want to go skiing? And her friends <laughs> are like, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. Sure, Barb. And this is sure. also, it's like, that introduces us to Olivia Hussey, who plays Jess, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then the amazing Andrea Martin, who plays Phil or Phyllis who I did not recognize at first because she is talk about deliciously 70s she is the 70s personified absolutely Um, but yeah fun fact about that too Gilda Radner was originally cast in that part but then she got yeah she got cast Mm -hmm. in a show called Saturday Night and had to drop out Saturday Night or just Saturday Night Live at first it was just called Saturday Night oh wow Oh, wow. Good, good factoid. That would have, I don't even know what that would have been. That would have been interesting. Because, I mean, Andrea Martin is a fantastic comedic actress, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't a comedic role. But it's funny, they wanted, they looked at two comedic actresses specifically for that role. That's a really good point. Because this is by far, like, the farthest from uh, a comedy that you could get in horror, which is, you know, appropriate. But it is interesting that you're right, that they looked at comedic actresses for that role. There is some comedy in it, like with Mrs. Mack and things like that. But overall... I find alcoholism funny. Which I do. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't. But but overall, yeah. there's not a ton of humor in this. So yeah, You're it right. is You're interesting. Right. You're right. And you know, now that you pointed that out, Miss Mac is probably the closest thing to like a comedic character, but you're also right that it's really tragically comic because, you know, alcoholism isn't funny. The amount of hiding of, of booze that she does um, and drinking that she does, it, it's concerning. I know it's it was supposed to be funny, but when we were rewatching it, I was like, this is, I'm really sad for Miss Mac. Yeah, it seems like she has her own little way of doing things and she seems mm-hmm. functioning. But yeah, I think yeah. definitely that would have been something used in the 70s to be like, oh, isn't it? funny this old lady's hiding booze all over her house which she's really not that old by the way but i'm just in sure, context of the film yeah looking at that i'm just kind of like oh poor miss mac but then when she does it, when her one bottle's empty i was sad for her because i wanted her to have that sherry <laughs> but it's also now when we are introduced to the moaner the moaner so the oh, phone rings God. so after barb gets off the phone with her mom the phone rings again jess answers she goes everybody it's the moaner these noises because of course everybody comes out of every room that they're in they come down the stairs and they're all huddled around the phone because i guess they can just hear it it's that loud the noises coming out of this phone i don't know what that guy was doing i have no clue i don't think he's healthy because i don't feel like those were sounds a healthy person with a healthy body would make it it sounded like multiple people being choked almost like it it, it, and that's what's so eerie about it is it didn't sound like one person it sounded like there there's like this sort of layeredness to the the creepy sounds that make you feel like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. guttural yeah guttural Mm -hmm. it was i i hate mouth sounds i cannot stand them (gasps) i can't do it so I literally had to mute it for a minute because it was too much. Mm -hmm. And I literally wrote down like these noises. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I something I, I really like liked about that moment is how they zoomed in on kind of each of the women's faces and we got to feel their reactions to it because we were feeling that as well. And so that sort of amplified the terror mm-hmm. of like, I was thinking about, God, what would I do if like somebody called and I heard someone doing that? I would be, I'd be effing terrified. Yeah, yeah I, would I would be, be freaked so out. disturbed. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it like, it descends because it goes from all of these really disgusting, guttural, smacky, choking noises mm-hmm. into just, just obscene things. This guy's Obscene, guy is obscene. Yeah. Yeah, because it is a man. I think it's safe to say it's a man's voice. But it, um, yeah, it, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just really, really obscene things and quite shocking for a 70s film i wasn't expecting to hear mm-hmm. pretty piggy c word yeah. i know we don't really we don't really um censor on this podcast but for some reason that just feels really gross to say so i don't want to say it um, yeah i wasn't gonna quote any of the things he said because I, I just wrote like super obscene um, yeah it was very yeah, obscene it, one of the interesting things about that too is they didn't know what the caller was actually going to say so the director was filling in the lines while they were filming but he didn't say what actually ended up in the movie because I was like they're actually pretty calm for Mm. what he's saying and then my other question was why are they all just gathered around listening Yeah, they're all just listening to this guy say these really horrible, obscene things. Yeah, I found that really interesting that he was like, no, 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 it's not enough. I need to amp up the obscene obscenity level of this phone call. So literally went back in and like plugged in even worse dialogue. But yeah, they were all handling it very well. And then Barb gets on the horn. What is she? She says, go stick your tongue in a wall socket. That'll really give you a charge. Yes, yeah. You know, the, my thought on why they maybe weren't more horrified, I thought that we were supposed to kind of take from the fact that she's like, it's the moaner again. And that moment we were supposed to kind of get the sense this has been happening quite a lot. So perhaps mm-hmm. not that not that you would ever like get used to that, but it's not the first time. So perhaps the first or second time there was more of a reaction from these women that, than now where, again, not that you're numb to it, but it's just perhaps it's a little different the more that happens. They just I think know what I, to expect. I think I personally would probably be freaking out more each time, but that's just me. Escalate, escalate. I'd be like, please, why are we doing something about this? Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to live here anymore. (laughs) But I'm guessing, too, that this happened all the time because Barb said in the city she'd get two of those a day so I guess dudes were just like hey let me call a random person and just say disgusting things to them the bar was so low for men at that point that they could do that and women just were just like well at least it's only one because in the city it's two so what are you complaining about that's true the bar is so low (laughs) (laughs) ah god yeah Those are all really good points. I thought one of the freakiest parts of the whole scene, which we haven't gotten to, is that at the very end, he's like, it's obscene, it's crazy noises. And then the last thing, super calm, super like monotone, I'm going to kill you, hang up. Like, very that. That that to me, like when I first saw it, I was like, (gasps) like that just took me aback because polar opposite energy of the rest of the call. Um, Absolutely. Because it was very sobering because the rest of the call felt very um, ridiculous and Mm -hmm obnoxious and felt Mm -hmm. like very much someone maybe playing some kind of prank yeah or something like that but then that moment it brought it into stark reality because it was very like you said just plain voice i'm going to kill you matter of fact yep very matter of fact yeah that for me Mm -hmm. was very disturbing as well and this really bothers claire Mm -hmm. she's one of the younger girls you can tell she says you know we need to take this seriously there was that girl from town that was raped to which Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Barb replies, you can't rape a townie. Darling, I you can't know. rape a townie. The, and I want to get to this line because <sighs> of, this is kind of an important thing to discuss. Because at first, mm-hmm. I didn't know what she meant by that. But I want to address first the way Barb talks to Claire. Because right. it's very condescending and dismissive. This line stood out to me for two reasons. One, obviously, it's a very shocking thing to say. Um, and there's problems with it. But the other thing is I think it really marked Barb and Claire's relationship. Because they talk about it later about Barb being really hard on Claire. And the way that she delivers this line is very dismissive and condescending to Claire. And if she had of heated this information a little bit, maybe this would have all turned out a little differently. But I was really curious about the, you can't rape a townie, because I was... Because I immediately thought, what does she mean by that? So I got to researching. I had never really heard the phrase townie before, except to describe someone that is from the town they live in. That's essentially, it's a Canadian term, typically. Like it's used mm-hmm. other places, but it does they do use that term quite a bit in Canadian film or Canadian media. So it is a person that grew up in the town and, it, and stayed in the town. But also there's like this whole theory that townie women are promiscuous, easy. So basically... What she was alluding to, in my opinion, is like, you can't rape a townie because townies are loose, slutty ladies. That completely makes sense. And thank you for that definition, because I I actually wasn't sure what a townie was either. But that makes so much sense when you're putting it in context that it's her way of just, you know, kind of, and and it's a real shame that she does this. But yeah, indicating that because apparently they have this reputation of being promiscuous, that means they are unable to be raped, which is a horrible thing, of course, to say. (laughs) Yep, the patriarchy was alive and well in Canada. Heck yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> probably still is, but it was in Black Christmas. I also feel like it might be a bit of a class thing too, because very bad. It's the yeah. university girls versus mm-hmm. the townspeople. So you know, the ones that have the money and the sure. ability to go to school versus these women that stay in town, work in town, mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's a really good point. So yeah, it's probably there's there's a, a sexism element to it but yeah I think more it's probably class absolutely this does upset Claire a lot and she goes upstairs to pack because she's leaving the next day there's this is such a great scene where we know that he's hiding in the closet we can see his hands through like the plastic covers on her clothes but also it's a great scene Mm. because of the cat oh my gosh the cat is very floofy and this cat man there's a couple of scenes that involve the cat and then something bad happening yeah the cat is kind of a a death omen (laughs) not the cat's fault it's just like it's sort of like like you said an omen that something you know is uh, terrible is about to happen (laughs) we're not saying the cat was in on it but we're also not not saying that as a cat as cat owner like we have two cats you guys know that you know cats i love them but also you know they they could be psycho murderers they could be in cahoots with psycho murderers you know if your demise suits their needs they could arrange that absolutely yeah they might feel bad but you know ultimately it's what serves their interests and just in case anybody was wondering nothing bad happens to the cat nothing bad never the cat but the cat might be responsible for bad things happening to people. At least in the script wise, the, the screenwriter might have been like, okay, every time someone sees a cat or tries to look for the cat, they're going to die. <laughs> well, that's, I'm so glad you pointed that out because Heath and I laugh about this. Like it is so common and I'm super guilty of it to watch like a film and like, you know, people get murdered, bad things happen to people. But the moment something bad happens to an animal, I'm like, what in the F is this? Like a dog, a cat. I'm <laughs> 
I'm furious in a way that I should always be furious, <laughs> but I should be more so furious with humans. But for something animal, animals dying in movies is always just like, I, I, I take it to another level for some reason. Oh, yeah. It's like you watch someone get hacked up with a chainsaw <laughs> or something, and then they like, you know, kick a puppy and you're like, kill them! Kill them! I'm not watching this anymore until I know the mm-hmm. dog's okay. As someone who reads a lot of screenplays for different jobs and things that I've done such a default it is people Mm -hmm. use it all the time and the the two things that I feel like are really really lazy writing and storytelling Mm -hmm. is death of an animal to further the plot violence against animals and rape Mm -hmm. to further a plot violence against women yeah agreed agreed amen to that snap 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 we get our first kill Claire's playing with the cat whose name is Claude it is a floof and she (laughs) hears a sound in her closet and she goes to investigate and she gets the plastic bag from her dry cleaning wrapped around her head. And this is an interesting shot because we see it from the killer's perspective but we see the bag go over her head and Mm -hmm. we see her like suffocating and struggling and like sucking the bag in and I thought that was really interesting. I saw an interview with the actress who plays Claire and she was like yeah I found out something during this filming. I can play dead really well and also it didn't bother me to have the bag over my head you know she said that it was clearly rigged where she could breathe and it wasn't too dangerous it was the 70s but who she knows wasn't claustrophobic but she was yeah, like yeah not. I could just hold my eyes open for a really long time and it didn't bother me so those scenes later of her in the rocking chair that's actually her that's blowing my mind because that is a skill like to, a, be, to be able to keep your eyes open and stay that still like because I, I think I always just assumed I mean it, it looks too real to be like a fake you know a fake body but I don't know I assume something was done to make her seem more still like, uh, like an edit or something yeah like something that they must have done something so that's that's a really it's a cool tidbit to know she is quite talented at at being still (laughs) no anytime I think about keeping eyes open for a long time I always think of Mackenzie from uh the normal heart when because Laura Ray and I um I directed a version of the normal heart and Laura Ray was in it one of the actors had a death scene and he left his eyes open. I didn't understand how he could do that. Yeah, I don't get that at all. My my eyes are too blinky, blinky, blink. I'm blinking just open. thinking about it. Me too. I, I start to like panic blink if I think uh. about not blinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I would never be able to be a, um, a dead body with eyes open, unfortunately. Yeah. This dead body has to have eyes closed. Yeah, true story. One other thing I wanted to point out real quick is on Claire's bed, and you don't get a good shot of it, but there is like a giant stuffed toy that looks kind of like a big ant. It's really weird. <laughs> I miss that. And you you just kind of see it like over her shoulder as this dread is building. And I was like, what is that? It's this giant like red face thing. So if anybody notices exactly what that is, let me know. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to have to look to, to rewatch and check that out because I don't think I've ever paid that close of attention to, to really even know what was on her bed. Good detail. But we also meet Mrs. Mack. She is right off the bat this big character and they present her with this nightgown mm-hmm. and they're like, put it on. And she's like... I have as much use for this as a chastity belt. Yeah, because this is like just a few days before Christmas. So it's a Christmas party. It's Christmas present. What did you say she said? She said, I have as much use for this as a chastity belt. 
Oh. Hey-o. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention that I liked that they used this convention of like, uh, you know, they cut from Claire getting suffocated to them all sort of like cheering and excited to sort of give us this idea of like, okay, this is a huge house. And this could also be why nobody's hearing anything, mm-hmm. you know, from the upstairs. Um, they do this a couple times. And I think it's it's really smart. It's like a it's like a good cut to let us as the audience understand. Oh, okay, they're all very distracted right now, so it's quite easy for this killer to to do his thing. Unfortunately. <laughs> and this is also where we find out that Mrs. Mack has a drinking problem because she's mm-hmm. looking through the bookcase and it's B for booze. It's one of the dictionaries, <laughs> I think. Yeah, she's cut out a bottle um, shape where she can keep her sherry. Mm-hmm. That's specific too. I think Heath even pointed that out. He's like, that's like a real specific specific like amount of work that she did to get that bottle in there she's like not only am i hiding my booze but it's going to make sense (laughs) and she's also got the bottle hidden in the tank of the toilet that she uses to rinse her mouth when she's brushing her teeth which i can't imagine how bad that tastes also she spits it out so that just seems like a waste her teeth are kind of gross too so i don't know that it's working so i don't know if she just like sneaks a drink here and there and it's like Christmas now so she's like oh whatever let me it's just like, get trash it's normally just a little nipper of the sherry and now it's just like a cocktail o'clock every 30 seconds <laughs> yeah maybe we're seeing her like at her worst that could t- potentially be and by worst I just mean like because it's the holidays yeah like kind of her most most boozy <laughs> yeah. no I literally wrote down because you know she just she kind of feels like she's on the struggle bus just a little mm-hmm. bit but also she's mm-hmm. doing her thing and like living her life and I just wrote down am I Mrs. Mac is Mrs. <laughs> Mac 2020 me I don't have any sherry you know in the what? toilet yet but the year's not over uh l- Mrs. Mac is probably 2020 a lot of the the world, truly. (laughs) This has been a rough year. It's been a rough year, I can say. I'm, I'm, you know, these ladies know, but I'm pregnant. It's been a rough year to be sober. I can say that for sure. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I haven't had that much to drink, but when I needed it, I could have it. So my heart goes out to you. okay i'm mostly teasing um there's a lot more important problems in the world but oh. but yeah you're right i 2020 uh miss mac is sort of like 2020 like everyone just yeah kind of at their peak of of struggle we also get a setup now for a conflict between jess and her boyfriend peter he calls on the phone and he's like i haven't slept in three days i'm practicing piano all the time and she's like i have to talk to you it's really important and he's like i'm tired and he says oh i I haven't slept in three days, which I would think if you have a big audition coming up, you would need to sleep. Men are dumb. That's true. <laughs> and so she sets up to meet him at the rehearsal hall the next day. And we also um, get a really, really creepy scene where our killer is singing little baby bunting. I don't remember how it went. Sorry, I was about, I was going to sing it, but then I remembered that I didn't remember it. <laughs> You remembered that you didn't to, remember. I remember, to wrap, I, I remember the very end. It's like to wrap his baby in. But yeah, I don't remember the it's rest like of something like he's gonna get a skin. Little baby Ugh. bunting. Daddy's gonna hunting. Gonna get a rabbit skin to wrap the baby bunting in. Ooh. Oh. And th- we see the rocking chair rocking with mm-hmm. the dead Claire in it. Mm-hmm. The dead Claire. Chair and Claire. 
the de- de- dead Claire in a chair. I wanted to back up about uh, Jess and Peter. Oh, yeah. Relationship. He pointed this out, which I thought was funny, but I also think it's important. Like, we get a real sense of, like, the, that they're not maybe in the same place. Like, something's wrong and they're yeah. not fully in the same place because he says, I love you. And then uh-huh. she says, I know. And so he was like, she Han soloed his. Uh, I his said ass. the same thing to Carl. <laughs> I was like, did she just Han Solo him? And, you know, like in Han Solo, that character, like when he said, I know, what he really meant was I love you. But this wasn't like a, this was like an, I know, like, I'm not going to say I love you back. It, it's like, it didn't... I know, and it's unfortunate. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so I wish you didn't. Of, I know. We got a lot of information, I feel like, from that short phone call about yes. kind of the, the turmoil in their relationship, even though we don't know the specifics yet. Yes. And so we move on to the next day where Claire's dad is waiting for her. We get straight away that he is just like a grump bug because he gets hit in the head with a snowball. He took it pretty well. Yeah, His glasses fall off. And so I understand being annoyed by that. But the guy comes over and he's like, I'm sorry, I should have been watching the kids better. And he's like, yeah, you should have. I mean, I don't think that's grumpy. I think that's a fair statement. Well, that's true. I guess I'm colored in my perception of him because of later events. Isn't that grumpy though? I never find him that grumpy. I think he's pretty mild. Oh, okay. Um, I wasn't offended. I wasn't offended by the dad. But I mean, but but you are entitled to your offense. He's looking for her because she was supposed to meet him. And he ends up at the sorority house. There is this... The granny photo series of just this little mild-mannered granny. It's it's like a poster. And starts out, she's just sitting in a rocking Mm -hmm. chair. And it just goes all the way down into the last picture is her just flipping off the camera. And the dad's just looking at this like... What? (laughs) Yeah, he's talking to Mrs. Mack and he says something to the effect of he didn't send his daughter to school to be drinking and picking up boys. And Mrs. Mack is like, oh no, she's a good girl. And I think Jess called her like a professional virgin at one time or something. Yeah, so she was, you know, probably doing exactly what her dad wanted her to do. And we did see a scene with her in the beginning with her boyfriend where she's kissing him goodbye and he says he's going to visit her and she said, I I have to get my parents used to the idea of me having a boyfriend before you can come over to visit. But can we also talk about, this is where I like Mrs. Mack, is because they're in Claire's room and so she has these kind of provocative photos like the granny Mm -hmm. thing. And then she has this poster of two people laying on top of each other naked making a peace sign. Mrs. Mack being the ally that she is, just like fully covers (laughs) up the crack on the person that's on top of the peace sign like she yes. covers up their ass um, and just like leaves her hand there just like she's hanging out covers it the whole time so the dad doesn't see it and then you know obviously she does a terrible job and he knows something it's something inappropriate so as mm-hmm. soon as she leaves the room he or he pulls the door back and sees that it's two naked people so she's going to take him to the fraternity house where this mm-hmm. party for underprivileged kids is going on and he's going to then drop her off at a store this this is one of the most 2020 mrs mac moments because she starts to put her lipstick on and she only gets half of her top lip done before mm-hmm. she starts she hears a noise and starts looking for Claude. Then she accidentally dumps everything in her purse out. She is just like cursing up a storm. Can we talk about what she says? Because she's kind of mocking what the dad said. She's like, Mm -hmm. I didn't send my daughter here to, what was it, drink and pick up boys? And she goes, tough shit. I know. (laughs) 
she's a lot of fun. I mean, it's definitely like her energy in this scene in particular, because she's sort of looking out for the, the girls. Like, as you mentioned, Lacey, as she's like kind of trying to hide the poster, you see that she's she's sort of trying to look out for her. What's on her mind? Um, adding a lot of uh, lovely curse words into it. It's, it's a lot. Of, it's probably one of the funnier scenes in this movie that's mostly doesn't have much comedy in it. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Mack provides us a little comedy. And like when she's mm-hmm. covering up the poster, I don't know if that's for Claire's sake or for her sake, because she doesn't want to get like a bad review or complaint written about her. That's so, true. She that's a not, good point. She it might could not be really be helping them out. It might be just for her. It could be self-serving. You're totally right. <laughs> She's sitting on the steps trying to pick up this stuff that fell out of her purse. When it falls out, she goes, balls. And then ah! she says, uh, or look what you did, you GD little prick. And that's when the dad pops up and hears her and gives her a look. And then when he starts walking down the steps, she flips him off. Yeah, she's definitely got a lot of attitude. Mm-hmm. And we see them through the window getting into the car. Oh, yeah. And our next scene is where Jess tells Peter what's going on. And I had an idea about what it was going to be. Did you? You know, I was so young when I first saw it that I can't say that I did. It, it, it's hard for me because I think if I'd seen this as an adult, I might have sensed it. But, you know, I was 14. What's interesting to me, too, I think about it as I'm like, I don't know that I, I mean, I, I knew about abortion at 14. You know, it was wasn't a, I guess, a topic that I was like <laughs> used to seeing on screen. And and that actually sort of brings me to, I don't want to like go too deep down this rabbit hole yet, but I think it's really interesting and pretty powerful that, you know, this film has a protagonist, the heroine, the kind of the central character is choosing to have an abortion because, you know, f- for the, the reason simply that she, you know, not simply, but for the reason that she doesn't want to have a child, she's not villainized at all in the film for it, like even at, like a, for a moment. I think that's something that that, you know, not that we see movies where people are villainized for this, but I thought that was really powerful, particularly for this time period, that she's our central character, she's our hero, she's choosing to have an abortion, and that's absolutely okay. It wouldn't matter the reason anyways, but, you know, her reason is simply because she doesn't want to have a kid, you know? And what's interesting about this movie is this was the template for a lot of things, but yet in most modern movies, it's, you know, the sexually active girl who gets killed first. In this one, it's the virgin that gets killed it's killed and the only one that survives is the one who is having the abortion which in a lot of movies would be a thing that she had to be punished for absolutely yeah and that's what I mean by like there's no villainization at all in in the script and the way that we feel about the character and and how the character was created Um, she's our final girl and I I think about even like modern films like there's not a ton of modern films that deal with characters that are having abortions I I mean there, there are some but it's just not extremely common you know yeah and it's it's, it's even less common to see it presented without judgment because that's the thing it's not looked at as like yes. oh good for her she's having an abortion or bad how dare she have right, an abortion right. it's just this is the matter this is the fact of what's happening I am pregnant and I don't want to be pregnant and that's the right. long and the short of it and Absolutely. even yeah. we see how unreasonable Peter is because he's just oh, putting these yeah. demands on her like oh you're going to marry me and it's like well doesn't she get a say in that he right. says you didn't even ask me can't think of anyone but yourself and basically mm-hmm. she like ruined his day by telling him this yeah and then she's like i debated if i was even going to tell you because absolutely it's yeah. none of your business 
Yes. She's so, it's, it's so powerful how assured she is. She's like, I've thought about this. I made this decision. This is my body. This is like my choice. And she never wavers at all. And it's, I, I like I said, it, it was super impactful to see that at a young age. And it's always been something that I thought was really, really cool about the film. And then, you know, as I got older and also read, you know, articles that talked about it too, I was like, yeah, you know, that's not something that we see that often in cinema, even now, you know? No. And that's what was so surprising to me is seeing it from mm-hmm. a time period where I mean, I don't know how many films featured abortion in the 70s. I don't know no. how often that happened or how many times it was like a non-judgmental portrayal. But You're it right. was very surprising to see a movie, period, that treated abortion the way this movie did. Yes, um, 100%. I want to share with you all the note that I wrote for this because it is ridiculous. <laughs> but it, it says, telling your controlling baby daddy you want an abortion in a fluffy pink beret. Iconic. Iconic. She did have a great beret on. Oh, I couldn't I, love it. I couldn't pay attention to the dialogue at first because I was just looking at the hat. Okay, and this is like not important at all, but I just want to say Olivia Hussey is like so beautiful. Like She's sometimes so I would just, beautiful. I'll just like be just like staring at her and screaming. I'm like, good lord. I mean she was Juliet after all. Uh-huh. Um, and again, none of that matters at all. She's a lovely actress, that's what's most important. But yeah, she's also she is very beautiful. Yeah, she's stunning. <laughs> and then from this amazing, powerful scene, we go to the worst children's Christmas party ever where Barb is giving a kid champagne no I literally wrote because it's okay this is the worst Santa I've ever seen because this guy is like ho 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 fuck and (laughs) like it's hilarious for us but like for kids can you imagine so I'm just like you guys did not choose the one this is not the right dude send him back terrible Yelp reviews for this one Because like literally every other word about out of his mouth was complaining and cursing. And yeah. And so Barb's feeding the kids booze. And I wrote children in need of cocktails, apparently. Apparently. Because apparently that's what they need. I could not believe that. I'm like, okay, is everyone else seeing this? But she was drunk too, so. And Claire's dad is there witnessing this whole thing. Like. Yeah, his his face. He's he's in a little bit of shock. Like, I get why you say you thought he was a grump. And he very well might be a grump. I just saw him as very like straight laced. Yes. like you know like this is so improper of young ladies to behave this way right very very prim proper prudy yeah he was right about giving kids alcohol yeah 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 he was that's true that's very true (laughs) most only a step jess gets another weird phone call while she's at the house seemingly by herself isn't this the one that has a little bit of like personal information in it it? we start to learn a little bit about i mean we don't really learn it that's what's so interesting about this character this killer we don't really learn anything but there are names there there is sort of a a scene that's sort of presented through his ramblings so there's we hear the name billy um we hear what your mother and i must know is where'd you put the baby and then different voices so it's it's very much sounds like you know it could be multiple people or obviously as we know it's one person who's doing multiple voices which is quite frightening <laughs> so she deals with this one and because it's it, freaky again mm-hmm. yeah barb is upset about claire's disappearance oh yeah because everyone's like oh i wish i had gotten to say goodbye to claire and they're like oh she's missing she didn't show up so <laughs> oh she's just missing literally though hey, they're just like oh well I no know. one can find her probably just say goodbye to her because she's just missing <laughs> she's i'm just sorry missing. <laughs> 
fine. She's, we just have no effing idea where she is. She could be dead. It's cool. I'm sorry. That's not funny. It's really messed up. Continue. <laughs> so Phil, Ooh. Barb, and Claire's dad go to the police, and the officer working the desk is officer like... Nash, I remembered. He's like, eh, she probably ran off with her boyfriend if it's any consolation, and the dad's like, no, actually, that's not any consolation. And what does Barb look at him and say? What does she say to him? She says something along the lines of, do you actually do anything? Or for a public servant... You're a really lousy public servant. Something like that. And I wrote down, I said, Barb really said a cab. <laughs> like, yeah, we talked about true. the serious ineptitude of this fucking law enforcement agency. Oh my God, guys, my notes. Anytime that blonde guy, I'm like, this effing cop in like all caps. Yes. He's like so awful. I He's literally so wrote, terrible. I'll tell you when I say it, but literally one of my notes is Nash is fired. Just fired. Fired. Get out. Get out of there. Because um, he's not taking it seriously. That the, the crap that he says, like it's, you know, that, it, oh, it's likely she's shacked up with a boyfriend. Like there's not even a like, you know, a hint of concern. It's like condescending. It's, oh, it, it's, yeah. it's incredibly frustrating. He tells Barb to shut up twice yeah, in this short conversation. He's a butthole. Mm. But then oh, yeah. as this is happening and they're trying to get help for Claire, we pan over to another part of the police station. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Police precinct? Police station. Police station. Precinct station. <laughs> the police place. We're in the police place where the police are doing like police that. things. Police mm-hmm. place. Fun place to be. Policed. Um, but there's another woman there that is filing a missing persons report for her daughter, Janice. So this mm-hmm. in this situation, Janice is a 13-year-old girl that was coming home from a band practice, I think. And mm-hmm. she never showed up. And they were like, well, is it strange for her not to show up? And the mom's like, yeah. She's 13 and we were going to go buy a Christmas present for her father. But also like, is it just strange for your 13 year old daughter just to like not come home? It's like, you know what? Yeah, 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 it is a little bit, officer. Never mind that there was somebody raped recently, but you know. Yeah, it's like the the dots were not connecting for DePopo in Bedford that day. Yeah, true story. And that's one thing that I read in an article about this movie is that all the men in it are completely inept. Except... Lieutenant Fuller, I feel, is the closest one that... And then um, Claire's boyfriend guy. Closest, but still... completely inept. But yes, most of the men are bumbling fools. They are. You're absolutely... You know, I hadn't actually, like, put those dots together, um, but you're 100% correct. And you're right, Lacey. I think the closest to somebody who seems to actually, like, have some semblance of care um, Mm -hmm. is the detective, um, Detective Fuller. Um, That's the closest, I would say. Because even Claire's boyfriend boyfriend is a little annoying I mean I know he's trying he's trying though I mean he's at least trying (laughs) well also he has and we might I might be jumping ahead and I am jumping ahead but one of my favorite moments of this film and it's just because I'm dramatic is when he storms into the police station after Jess goes to find him to tell him Claire's missing he storms into this police station Mm -hmm. fully wearing a fur coat and just like saunters up to the desk and Mm -hmm. it's just like what are you doing and just like fucking Mm -hmm. tells Nash where to go and what to do and I just I love that scene yeah no that is a nice scene 
I, somebody's actually like telling him off, which needs to happen. I just live for the drama, mm-hmm. which is the only way that anything happens because it's after that that they form the search party and then they find the body of Janice. And then mm-hmm. everybody's like, oh, well, maybe this is serious. Well, and also the discovery of Janice's body is important because it is the only time in the movie where a female victim's body is not shown. Oh, wow. Think, yeah. Think about it. Oh, that's a really, that's a really good point. But I wonder if it's because she's considered a child I mean she she yeah. is a child so I wonder child, if that's yeah. the distinction they're like oh well we can't show a dead child but also we never see her alive or dead so maybe that was just like oh we don't have to cast anybody fair one less paycheck yeah that's that's true it's, it, it, it's probably not as um, imp- impactful as if we had known the character and seen her alive I mean it would still be terrible it's probably a combination of all those things she's a kid and then yeah they don't have to pay somebody to to play that body. <laughs> no, yeah, so they have these these search parties. They discover Janice, but they still cannot find Claire. Well, let's take a break real quick and talk about a few of our ladies. Our leading ladies. Olivia Hussey plays Jess, who is our final girl. Mm-hmm. And she's probably best known for starring as Juliet in the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. But she was only 15 when she starred in that. And she won a Golden Globe for it. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's Awesome. She also won two Best Actor Donatello Awards, which is the equivalent of an Oscar in Italy. Very cool. Oh, she suffered from agoraphobia, but she overcame it with the help of medication. No, meditation. Oh, meditation. Yeah, she didn't <laughs> use medication, apparently, and just did meditation. And I had no idea about this, but she was offered the role of Alex in Fatal Attraction, but turned it down because she was disturbed by the violence towards animals in the film. Uh, she oh. worked as an animal rights activist. For We did cover Fatal Attraction. That role went to the amazing Glenn Close. So that would have been mm. a very different movie. And mm-hmm. a really fun fact about her too is she was Roald Dahl's first choice to play the Grand High Witch in The Witches. Obviously that didn't work out and we have the amazing Angelica Houston in that role. Olivia Hussey was? Yes, Olivia Hussey oh was, was his original dream actor to play that role. That's incredible. I didn't know that. And she debuted on the London stage opposite Vanessa Redgrave in the prime of Miss Jean Brody which I've never I have never seen a play production but the movie is amazing and Maggie Smith plays Miss Jean Brody so this isn't that pertinent but I find it kind of interesting just the tie into different celebrities so she had three children and each she had 10 years apart but her first child she had in 1970 sometime right it was like two years before this movie so like 71 70 but it was with her first husband who happened to be Dean Martin's son. Wow. Oh, wow. Crazy. And so Margot Kidder plays Barb, and she was best known for playing Lois Lane in Superman, mm-hmm. the Christopher Reeve version. She's great, Lois Lane. Oh, she was the first choice for Carrie in the movie Carrie. Which is a huh. tie-in to um, setting the scene for this film when it debuted, because Carrie was released as a novel. Oh, yeah. Let's see. She was in a serious car crash in 1990 and couldn't work for two years, and she went bankrupt. Jeez. Mm. And then she had um, some pretty major uh, mental health problems um, that were really publicized in the 90s and 96. Um, She was diagnosed with manic depression. I don't think it's called Mm. that now, but 
I'm not a doctor. I couldn't t- tell you what it's called now. But um, mm-hmm. she was living in a state of paranoia. She was convinced that her first husband was trying to kill her. She was at one point homeless. Fortunately, she was able to get her life back on track with the help of her family. But mm-hmm. yeah, she definitely had a rough go there for a while. She was also really good friends with Carrie Fisher, who played Princess Leia. And Aww. one of the things that they both had in common were their struggles with mental health. That was something that bonded them. And she actually sadly passed away in 2018, two years after Carrie Fisher. Um, but she passed away in her home in Livingston, Montana. She was 69. Um, mm-hmm. And it was ruled a suicide by overdose. Oh, wow. That's so sad. Okay, but this, this. this is so iconic is the only word I can think of. It, she stated that it was her final wish that her remains would be devoured by a pack of wolves. <laughs> That is iconic. But her her ex-husband and daughter did not do that. They had her cremated. They sprinkled her. Let's see. They get, returned her ashes to her brother and scattered some of her ashes in Labrador City, Newfoundland, and Labrador. So I don't know if that was their <laughs> attempt at like giving her two dog cities because mm-hmm. all of those are dogs. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. And now about the amazing Andrea Martin, who I am a huge fan of. Fun fact before we get into these fun facts, I saw Andrea Martin in 2015, 2016? 2015 in the musical Pippin I was actually there on the first night of previews for Pippin and she played the grandmother I can't remember her name in the play but she sang uh, the song like oh it's time to start living time something the world we're given I can't remember what it's called in it so Pippin that that time had been reconceptualized as a circus like with circus acts so this woman who's in her late 60s at the time did a full aerial act with like this super muscular aerialist and sang did this full aerial routine up in the air over the audience and when that woman came down she had a five minute standing ovation I shit you not they had to stop the the song like the whole place stopped wow it was the most incredible one of the most incredible theatrical moments I've ever seen I can imagine jeez she's had some amazing stuff in 1972 she played the character of Robin in a production of Godspell with Gilda Radner, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, Victor Garber. It's like, and it was directed by Paul Schaefer. It's like, this is amazing. I wish I could have seen that. Two of her early roles were in horror films, 1973 Cannibal Girls, and then Black (laughs) Christmas. She was in the original production of Young Frankenstein and got a Tony Award nomination for that. Some of her film credits include another Christmas movie, All I Want for Christmas. She was was the maid that was pregnant. She had at the end, she was having her baby. Yep. And she was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which I've never seen, but I've heard is amazing. So good. She was in The Producers. Of course, My Big Fat Greek Wedding and My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. And Hula. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go back to Pippin just for a second, since that seems to be where I'm contributing. She won everything. She won a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Featured Actress in a Musical, Best Featured Actress in a Musical Tony Award, and Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Featured Actress. She won it all. Yeah, sounds like she deserved it. 
Um, Heath texted me this, and I you guys probably see it on your thing. Didn't she play Miss Mac in the 2006 remake of Black Christmas? Does it say that in her credits? She did. Oh, that was a whole thing because they wanted to bring one person back, and it was between her and was it Olivia Hussey? They they went between two actors, and they ended up bringing in her. I yeah, because he, he, I think I told you that Heath is the one who, who's seen it. I have not seen the 2006 re- remake. Yeah, she was Miss Mac, which that alone yes. makes me like want to see it, even though I've been advised. Like, look at this cast list. You have Katie Cassidy, the daughter of David Cassidy, who was in the Partridge family. So there's that. You have Michelle Trachtenberg, a.k.a. Harriet the Spy. You have Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who was Ramona Flowers and Scott Pilgrim. You have Lacey Chabert, a.k.a. Gretchen Wieners. Oliver Hudson, um, Goldie Hawn's son. Like, it may be a terrible movie, but the cast is fascinating. I know. You know, it it makes me want to see it, even though I know I've been told, you know, as a, a hardcore fan, of the the original film I've been advised by many that I trust that I probably won't enjoy the 2006 remake but it is such a great cast you're absolutely right but also when you're told this is terrible you won't like it doesn't that make you want to watch it just a little bit more yeah and you know what here's the thing with me in horror films I watch them all like I, I watch the very good and the very bad so and sometimes the very bad can be fun you can laugh you can have a good time with it and then sometimes they're just very bad and there's there's nothing redeeming at all about them so you're like oh god that shouldn't <laughs> (laughs) happened. (laughs) The director of the 2006 remake either wanted Margot Kidder or Andrea Martin to play Mrs. Mm -hmm. Matt. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. They got Andrea. She's the sister-in-law of Martin Short. She became a Canadian citizen after living there for 47 years. She is a spokesperson for the Children of Armenia Fund. She is Armenian. Mm. She is a member of the charity Artists Against Racism. Awesome. Pretty cool lady. Sounds like it. That's really cool. And now back to our feature presentation. <laughs> so um, my notes are a little scattered, but did we talk about Peter's concert? Are we there yet? Or is that too far? Are we, are, are we there? Are we past it? Or um, Peter's concert? Remember when we, we see him playing for the, I guess, it looks like it's like a dissertation, essentially. I feel like that happens right after the discovery of Janice. So I think we're right on yep. track to talk mm-hmm. about that. Because Jan- they yeah. find Janice's body that night and his... Mm-hmm. Con- his audition or whatever is the next day. And yes, he's not handling anything well. Flubs his audition. Sweating. It's like really intense. It sounds like, you know, he's hitting a lot of wrong notes. Yeah. And you can just feel in his like body language too that he is struggling, which just like we talked about, if you haven't slept in, you know, days, that's probably not going to help the situation at all. <laughs> in an act of what I deem to be the most male, white male privilege, he takes a music stand and destroys a piano a wonderful expensive instrument that does not belong to him and he just destroys it because he's mad it's so infuriating i want to touch on the score right now because that kind of ties right into the score throughout the film it's a really frustrating scene when he smashes that piano i was the same way i'm super angry i love pianos and you're right it's like this is not yours how dare you like you know in your 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 frustration think that it's okay for you to do this but but the sound of him smashing the piano if you listen to the reverb um, and then you also listen to the score of this film which is one of my favorite parts of it is that it has that reverb oftentimes that sound of like that echoey sound of like a piano 
not necessarily being smashed, but like the kind of sort of like the after the smash, the sort of echo that comes with it. And then really disjointed piano notes. I find that really haunting, but I also think it's a really interesting like touch because it kind of brings us as the audience into this feeling, especially when we start seeing Peter play the piano and we see this scene with him smashing. We're like, wait a minute, is it Peter? Like, I really feel like that's, it, it's this sort of foreshadowing of like, wait, is it, is this all about Peter? Is it going to be Peter? There's yeah. anger. And yeah, the way the music's played, it's very tense and it puts you on edge. Yes, definitely. But yeah, I wrote down a couple things. So the first note that I have is why are the shit boyfriends always musicians? I feel like that's like <laughs> the rule. I'm saying that and my husband's a musician, but... <laughs> But in, in media, a lot of times, like the shittier the boyfriend, you're like, what instrument does he play? Oh, okay. And then the other one is like, I said, I guess the recital didn't go well. Hashtag Peter Smash. Good God. Come on, dude. Such a beautiful piano. It's heartbreaking. Those things are so expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think this is the moment where we are really supposed to be like, oh, whoa, is it him? Whoa. What we've yeah. seen before, there is another obscene phone call that comes in. And Jess, she's done with this. So she calls the police and she's like, what can we do about this? And in their true fashion, they're like, well, why don't you call the phone company? I don't know. What are we supposed to do about it? I think this is when Claire's boyfriend finally, I think I really jumped the gun on when he like busts in the police station. So he goes in there and. That's the only time they start taking him seriously is when a man goes in and starts raising hell. But not even any man because Claire's dad has been in there and they didn't take him seriously. No, but this guy, he's forceful he's in a fur coat he like pushes the door up i think it was the fur coat honestly i couldn't stop <laughs> looking it. at it i couldn't stop lo- i like rewound I, I mean you can't rewind a dvd or i was on the criterion channel so i would back it up and i watched it because i just really loved it the fur <laughs> like, coat gave him power i do think you're correct in that um, the drum it was the feathered hair and the fur coat i mean how can you not feel powerful but he's also a townie and he knows he is a townie because they say that Claire's dating a boy from town and he knows the detective so he goes in there and he's like hey I know you what are you gonna do about this right yep and then Lieutenant Fuller gets involved and Lieutenant Fuller is the only police officer in this whole damn place that gives a shit well and he also connects he's like hey wait a minute they've been getting obscene phone calls somebody from their sorority house is missing like aren't you and then we have somebody who's raped like somebody who's been killed like aren't you putting these pieces together he's talking to the stupid blonde cop you know the the effing cop yes he kind of he actually like puts those pieces together and kind of validates what we're all feeling which has been like this stupid cop is not taking them seriously and it's such a serious situation it has been from the beginning you know yeah he's like let's put a a tap on your phone like we can do that Mm -hmm. and figure Mm -hmm. out where these calls are coming from and track him down and see if he has any information on Claire Mm -hmm. so yeah this is when things start to move along a little bit because up until this point it's just been like yeah this is creepy Mm -hmm. this is happening we've had our second murder too because Mrs. Mac goes into the she's searching for Claude because she hears him meowing and Mm -hmm. they're leaving to go to the search party for the that the town is organizing for Janice and Claire right before they leave she tells Mrs. Mac tells Phyllis like I'm gonna go to my sister so I might not be back when you come back Barb is upstairs sleeping it off because she kind of made an ass of herself at dinner and said some really inappropriate things to Claire's father and just Mm kind of stuck her foot in it so Phyllis 
Phyllis is like, go to bed. She's like, okay. So Mrs. Mac is like telling Phyllis like, hey, I'm going to my sister. So I probably won't be back when you come home. And she's like, just check on Barb before you leave. As she's getting ready to leave, the taxi's outside. She hears Claude meowing and she's like, where Mm -hmm. are you? I need to find you. And so Mm -hmm. I'm like, were you going to leave this cat? (laughs) And he just happened to meow. So and that's when she ends up going. She hears something in the attic. So she Mm -hmm. goes up and she climbs up. She sees Claire's dead body wrapped in the plastic like she she sucked it into her mouth rocking dead and that's about the time that we see from the killer's perspective that he lets go of this giant hook right Mm -hmm. for her head which why do they have that why do we even have that lover why do they have ice skates and a rocking horse and all of these other things it's a sorority house i don't think it's a daycare i don't know yeah it's I'm so country. I don't it, even know it, the, at, the attic has some like pretty odd and terrifying things in it. Like it, it seems like nobody ever goes up there. Like, I mean, obviously, well, if think about it, like we've got it, we've had a dead body up there for a while now. Like nobody really cares about the attic. <laughs> like no um, one's gone up. And I wouldn't go up there either. It's a terrifying attic. <laughs> It's like the scariest. They did a wonderful job, like setting the, like the the, the ambiance of that attic, like building, you know, the set or the props and all that stuff. Because it's yeah, it feels like a yeah, a house of terror. It's horrible. Yeah, it definitely gives the creep factor a major boost. But the thing also that's quite impressive is that it's so stacked and stocked with stuff, but yet there's still room to like set up this little chair <laughs> with the dead body and like have this little I tableau. Know. I know. But yeah, I think Mrs. Mac might be a hoarder amongst other things. Maybe. That's true. They kind of just shove everything up in the attic that they don't know what to do with. She's and like, you're right. Probably a lot of it belongs to Miss Mac. <laughs> she's like, I found this giant hook. Put it in the attic. I also thought, think it's really, it was just really smart writing. I just like to point out that in two scenarios, we have a character who's like, hey, I'm going to be leaving. So you probably won't see me again. Love you. Bye. And then they get murdered. And so then we all, like the, everybody in the sortie house is like, oh, they left. So they're probably just home or they're what, I mean, Claire, obviously we, we know Claire is missing, but there's never a moment where anybody in that house is like, could Claire be in the house? It's, it's just like a really genius writing point to do that because we have these two people that get murdered and nobody ever suspects they could be in the house. Right. And no one suspects anything's wrong with them. I don't think right. anyone ever goes, hey, where's Mrs. Mac? Never. They just don't expect to see her again. It's the perfect setup for someone to be mm-hmm. murdered. Yep, 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 yep. And so we've touched on it a bit, but this movie was an anomaly for the time because of the strong feminist themes in it. Now, granted, mm-hmm. it's not perfect. There are some problems, but on a whole if you compare it to a lot of movies of the time or even stuff that like comes out now. It's surprisingly progressive. Oh, yeah. Because of how they handle abortion and the fact that Mm -hmm. it is the women who are the ones taking care of the problem. The boyfriends can't control their emotions. The cops are bumbling Mm -hmm. and don't take anything seriously. How Barb says, you know, this is a sorority house, not a convent. So what, what are we supposed to do? Come here and just like mind our P's and Q's the whole time and not do anything. Yep, you're absolutely right. And then something that I always like to see in horror films because it's so common to see like, you know, over-sexualization of, you know, the females or like uh, sexual violence against females that you see like that happens so often in horror films or just like nudity that's like, why why is this here? It's not necessary. Like, and it's always the females. Like, so those are just like really common like tropes and things you see in horror films, particularly in like the 70s and the 80s. I mean, but always really. And 
so that's something else that I appreciate about this film is that there's never any of that at all. It's really just like we're focusing on like the story and the women are, are I think are all pretty well fleshed out characters, the ones that, that we get to know. Yeah, I think they are too. And with this being a male director and I didn't look up who the editor is, but it's not male gazy at all. They're never shot in like, oh, let me get tight up on the boobs or the butt or something like that they're just shot as people and and it's a male screenwriter too so usually with that combination you don't get the women shot the way that you do in this film and yeah there's no nudity there's nobody prancing around in their bras let's see editor was stan cole and he did a christmas story he did murder by decree at the sherlock holmes thing the hitchhiker bunch of things that I've never seen. So, okay, again, still a male editor and that that's unusual to get the filming. But this is a quote that I pulled from an article that I'll link in the show notes. It says, Neither are they safe for male apathy. Most of the police disdainfully brush the moaner's death threats off as just your boyfriend playing a bad joke. Laugh and get over it, right? It's just a harmless joke. No harassment is harmless or humorous. It always grows. The moaner begins with obscene phone calls and evolves into murder because his psychology is simple. He loathes women. Absolutely. That's a really good quote. Yeah, and this perfectly leads into what happens because I jumped a little bit about Fuller tapping the phones because before that happens, right after Jess calls the police, as she's calling the police, she is surprised to find Peter in the house, which is another thing to kind of cast suspicion on Peter because he's just like in the house right after Mrs. Matt got a crane to the face. Yes, and that the, they did a brilliant job with the shot too because we're getting like, we're from the point of view, and we don't know at the time, but it's Peter. And we I thought, it you know, you think it's the killer who's like coming down the stairs very slowly. And then we learn that it's Peter. So just like you said, Lacey, it's sort of like giving us as the audience like, hey, mm, seems like it's Peter, right? <laughs> All signs pointing to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> It's Deaf Peter, right? <laughs> and gosh, you know, he's, there's been so many, there's not, there's been nothing good about Peter so far, unfortunately. Like every scene that we've seen with Peter, he's been really toxic. He's been really controlling. He's been abusive essentially in his behavior and controlling. And so we're, we haven't seen anything to make us think anything positive about Peter at this right. point. And we still don't in this scene because this is the scene nope. where he's like, you're going to marry me. And that's that. And she's like, uh, but no, I'm not. She has such a great great line in this when she's talking to him about why she doesn't want to have a baby and Mm -hmm. I can't remember it verbatim because he's talking about because he's going to leave the conservatory he said he's tired of living with roommates and waiting for the restroom and waiting for the shower and he wants to have a real life and he wants to marry her and have this kid and she's like no I don't want any of that I don't want to marry I don't want this baby and I don't want to marry you she says something along the lines of when we first met we told each other all the dreams and things we wanted to do well I still want to do those things yeah it was it was a really beautiful line because it was yes it was it's I'm not ready to let those go yet yes and just like you guys mentioned already you know she's so rational and like she's you know she has thought this through and she's very clear in you know in presenting this to him and he 
is so incredibly like unstable in his responses to her. Like he's not hearing her. He's very controlling and it's all kind of about him. It's very selfish. So that the kind of the contrast between those two, it's really, it again, just sort of reemphasizes like, okay, Peter, Peter's not a good person. And so immediately when you're watching a horror film already, we're going to suspect the boyfriend because hey, tropes <laughs> and also like a uh, real life, true crime spouse. It's usually the spouse or the boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> but also like we're just getting so much presented to us as the audience that like this is not a good person unfortunately you know right. doesn't mean you're it, just because you're a bad person doesn't mean you're a murderer but it makes us suspicious you know well and also going back to Lara's point about how the men are often bumbling or you know unable to uh, control themselves emotionally this highlights mm-hmm. that perfectly because she's rational she's thought mm-hmm. this out mm-hmm. and she's made a decision based on a logical train of thought on mm-hmm. what is going to be the best decision and mm-hmm. he is completely emotionally unstable yep. because he and he cannot control it because he's so upset that she doesn't want to assume this traditional role and be his wife and the mother yep. of his child yep 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 one thing before we get to the next kill about this movie is there is very little blood in this movie like for as horrific as this movie is it's not gory at all at all you're absolutely right the imagery is really horrifying and we do see some really horrible images but they're not gory like we we're not seeing blood we're not seeing like open wounds things like that pretty much the bloodiest scene is barb's murder when she gets stabbed with this crystal unicorn you're right right after this confrontation between peter and jess of course he has he didn't get his way so he's mad and he storms out of the house as lieutenant fuller arrives with the telephone lineman to tap the phone so this is when that starts taking place and so the police come to the same idea that we do that maybe this guy is peter yeah so we're rapidly losing girls we're left with jess and phil at this point yeah, and the way, and again, kind of harkening back to what you said, Laura Ray, about how they're able to kind of cover up the murders within the house or make it believable that someone could be murdered in a house with other people mm-hmm. and them not know it is after the linemen and the police officer leave, these kids show up and start caroling at the house. So Jess mm-hmm. is at the front door watching these kids carol. Also, these kids brought in some prime harmonies because they just they have like the one melody and then all of a sudden it's like oh three parts it was very impressive so kudos to that teacher because I don't know how she got that done but anywho so while these adorable yeah. little children are singing these these Christmas carols to Jess right before this I don't I don't know what happened but you're led to believe like the killer's in the room with Barb and something happens and she starts having an asthma attack and so they get her inhaler she um, and, uses and, 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 it I've she, never seen an inhaler used the way she uses it <laughs> and, and I think what happens, I'm remembering correctly, is that we actually are, again, from the p- killer's point of view, we see him go into Barb's room. Yes. Um, and so we know he's in there. And then it cuts to uh, us hearing, or Jess hearing, rather, Barb having an asthma attack. And so she runs into her room. So it's a, it's a really scary scene because we as the audience understand, wow, the killer was just in here. So she's Barb is saying, oh, I had a nightmare that somebody was in my room. And we as the audience know, yeah, because somebody was in your room. But Jess doesn't know this, obviously. And mm-hmm. so it's just it's just another like kind of foreshadowing of what's about to happen which is obviously Barb's about to get murdered (laughs) yeah and she does get murdered in quite grand fashion because there's Mm -hmm. this glass or crystal unicorn with this very long pointy horn the killer uses that to stab her repeatedly while Jess is listening to the carolers outside and it has the shot from the DVD cover too where we get we just 
see the killer's like eye because it's like dark, 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 yep. dark, dark. And then there's like, we can sort of see his silhouette, but then we see like the, the light is like hitting his one eye and he looks just absolutely terrifying. Yes. <laughs> it's it's a really good shot. It's like you barely see his face, but what you see is absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like the, the look in his eye, you're just like, I mean, whew, whew. Yeah, it's a scary shot for sure. And they try to track the call a few times, but they can never keep the guy on the line long enough. Yeah, because he, he starts, cause so he murders Barb and then he goes back to making the phone calls. But he won't stand, but he keeps rambling and you get a little bit more information. It's like, again, it's all the voices and it's kind of giving you the impression what I took away, he is Billy mm-hmm. and he's kind of reenacting something that happened within his childhood mm-hmm. where he murdered his sister. I think so. I absolutely think you're right. And then I think, you know, there's there's been some phone calls, but I think kind of at the point we're at, something I wanted to point out is like one of the last, you know, conversations that Jess and Peter had where Peter was the most kind of un- unstable and upset. You know, he says that she talked about having an abortion like it was having a wart removed, like it was something very, you know, casual. And then in the phone call, one of the, the more the kind of the most recent phone call, the killer says it's just like having a wart removed. And Jess, we see her reaction to that because that was directly from their conversation. Again, making us as the audience like, what? Is it Peter? And then even the detective is like, like what? he he knows something's wrong because of the way Jess reacted to it. But Jess is obviously struggling with the concept of it being Peter as well, which is totally understandable. Even if she doesn't want to be with this guy anymore, nobody wants to think that somebody they've been in a relationship with is like a, a psycho murderer, you know? Yeah, it's capable and so of she, that. Yeah, so she's really struggling with that information too. In between these phone calls, Peter does call Jess. Oh, oh he does call. You're, yeah, he yeah, does yeah. call Jess. You're absolutely no, right. No, and, no, and, it's totally fine because that's, it's like that happens. He says that, but then also he calls and he's just sobbing, talking about we can't kill the baby and saying mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. And so she's just basically like, Peter, go to bed or Peter, we'll talk about this tomorrow. Like she's just trying to get him off the phone to open the line yeah. back up. And he's just using her as an emotional waiting pool. He says we can't kill the baby. And Lieutenant mm-hmm. Fuller picks up on that. And he's like, what did he mean? Mm -hmm. And so Jess is like, well, I'm pregnant and I don't want to have the baby. I'm planning on having an abortion. And this is one of those Mm non-judgmental moments that I thought was so telling. He goes, we can't kill the baby. That's a strange way of putting it. And having grown up in evangelical America in the 90s, it's like just hearing him say it just so non-judgmentally was really validating. Yeah, I agree. That's a really good point. It's kind of, I think one of the only like ally men we have in this movie is the detective, honestly, who seems to, again, his intentions seem kind of the, the purest of every other male character within this film. And you're right. It's very, he's not judging. And he's also picking up on the fact that that, that is sort of like a kind of a, he's in, Peter's in this really unstable place. He's saying things that are sort of threatening. He's very emotional. So he's sort of kind of putting two and two together and starting to think, wait a minute, we've got an unstable boyfriend and murders happening related to this sorority house. So not too hard of a puzzle to put together when you think about it. Because again, a lot of times it is the spouse, the boyfriend, the lover, unfortunately. As an audience member, you feel like you're starting to reach the natural conclusion of the film. You you start accepting the idea of Peter being the killer more and more, especially mm-hmm. when it seems like the lieutenant is thinking that as well. I, I wanted to say one more thing really quick is that there's a shadow in the background. Did you guys notice that in this this one particular scene? It's when Jess and um, Phyllis are like sitting by the fire and she's talking to the cop and you can see like a shadow sort of like moving when she's talking to the cop in the background. And it's really haunting and it's so subtle that some people might miss it. 
but it's the it's the killer, obviously. I missed yeah, that I just thought completely. It was a, it's a beautiful shot. There's so many beautiful shots in this film that are very subtle, and that was one that I just like I noted because I I just I thought it was mwah, Chef's kiss, very good. I'll have to go back and watch for that. Lieutenant Fuller leaves the house. Mm-hmm. I think he's going in search of Peter. They end up tracing the call and they realize that the killer is in the house. They have Nash call and say, just get out of the house. There, He's not supposed to say anything that would frighten. He literally is like, Nash, do not screw this up. Just tell her to put the phone down and to walk outside. Leave the mm-hmm. house. So mm-hmm. Nash obviously tells her that the killer is in the house. Well, because she's like, because he's like, is anyone in the house with you? And she's like, oh, Phil and Barbara in the house. And at this point, I think we've seen Phil go into a room and you are led to believe like something has happened to her because she just disappears. Yeah. Um, Phil's but, death, you're absolutely right. It's sort of, um, yeah. It's the so only sorry. death we... that we don't see. It's the only murder we don't see happen, I think, besides Janice. Yes, you're and absolutely the main right. Um, murders... she, she goes to check on Barb and the door shuts and um, she doesn't shut it. So we're led to believe, okay, she's about to get murdered. When Nash gets Jess on the phone, he's like, oh, is anyone else in the house with you? And she's like, yeah, Phil and Barb. And he's like, okay, you you leave. You leave. She's like, okay, well, I'm going to go get Phil and Barb. And so she's like kind of like pushing back at him. He's like, no, 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 no. You just, you need to leave. And she's not listening. Yeah. And then he just starts yelling at her. The call is coming from inside the house. Yes. It's a, it's a powerful scene. And obviously like the detective knew, I mean, he shouldn't have given this job to Nash. That was, you know, Nash can't do anything right. But Nash is fired. Um, <laughs> Nash, he's that's, fired. That's where I he's wrote straight- the note. I'm like, Nash is Fired. Nash had one job and he didn't do it ever. <laughs> uh, like literally, his one job was not to tell her, and he told her. No, but I love it how you but, said he had one job to do and he did not do it ever. <laughs> That's true because it's like every scene he doesn't do his job. But but all to say, like I thought th- the scene was powerful because obviously the detective understood Jess is going to want to try to help her friends. She's not going to want to just leave. So if you give her no information, perhaps maybe she will actually get outside. Obviously, if she goes to try to look in the house, he understands that she could get killed. He just wants her out. And just as we suspect, because she cares about her friends, she knows that she can't leave without them, which I thought part of me is like, no, girl, you've got to go. They're dead. But she just doesn't know that. So, I mean, it's quite heroic of her to try to go save them. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, and also, they haven't found any of the bodies, so they don't know that anybody is dead yet, except for Janice. And that's a question that I have for you guys. Did he kill Janice and rape the girl from town, or is that a completely separate thing? Keith and I were talking about this, and we're not 100% sure. I think think in a lot of ways it would make sense if it was all connected, because we've gotten, you know, this information about these two other victims that are outside of the sorority house. But then at the same time, it could not be connected. There are bad people everywhere, you know? And so these could be completely unrelated crimes. I could see it going either way. I don't know how you guys feel. The only thing that leads me to believe, like, I could see him being responsible for Janice. Because the thing that kind of I noticed about the character of Billy and, like, how he chooses a victim, A, there doesn't seem to be a lot of choosing. It just seems to be, like, who walked in the room. There's never any sexual violence. The girl You're right. You're right. The girl in the beginning that they talk about was raped, but he doesn't rape any of the other victims. So, I mean, it's possible... Because I did read something where they thought that there was some sexual abuse going on in the flashbacks that he's talking about that, and or that he's kind of reenacting over the phone. And I think that could go either way. I think that's what you pick up on. I just picked up on violence. Just killing. You're right. And you know, now that I think about it, the w- woman who was raped, I don't think she was
was murdered. And that makes me think that perhaps because of what you just said, that it's probably not connected because Billy seems to be, unless he just like missed an opportunity to murder her, he seems to be like, that is his, you know, killing is his thing. It's not yep. necessarily at all sexual. It's just killing, you know? Billy's the name, killing's the game. And I guess Absolutely. he, I guess he could have killed Janice on the way to the sorority house. Well, it's, it's highly sure. probable because she was walking home. Yeah, you're so right. So it's highly yeah. probable that if he was out, she was out. Mm-hmm. He did murder her. I could yep. see that would make more sense to me than him raping the woman from the beginning. Yeah, mm. no, I, I'm right there with you, Lucy. I think that those are really good points. Layers and layers and layers. Mm. I thought mm. about it. Well, also because it's like I don't, I hate violence against women. So I, it's not that I'm trying me to too. save him as a character, but I'm. Just trying to <laughs> think about maybe maybe he's also not a rapist. Maybe he's just a straight up murderer, which I don't I am, know why I'm, that's better, but No, Lisa, I'm right there with you. That's why I was talking about earlier. Like I, I get so relieved <laughs> even in slasher movies where like people are dying, which is effing horrible. But if there's no sexual violence, I'm like, phew. But even though people are still being murdered, which is effing terrible. <laughs> Yeah, it's, there's something just that's it's relieving if there's no sexual violence in addition to the murder. Yeah, because it's like it's dehumanizing enough to be murdered, but just to have mm. your dignity further stripped away. And sure. I'm always grateful when it's just a straight up murder. Straight murder. Yeah. When they don't use rape or violence against, or I shouldn't say violence against women, because there's plenty of violence against women in this, but sexual violence yeah. against women as a plot yes. drive. So Jess knows that the killer's in the house and she runs upstairs and she finds Phil and Barb on the bed dead with blood on them. But right before this and I think this was one of those moments because it was just a moment of hope that she was going to leave because she gets to the front door and you think she's going to leave and you're just like come on, come on, come on I know it's hard I know it's hard just go, just go Mm -hmm. and she turns around she looks at the fireplace she sees the fire poker grabs it and dashes upstairs and you're like god damn it you heroic bitch. I know she's (laughs) and that's the thing it's like it's actually a different different feeling than a lot of times you know you get frustrated when you see like the character that's like goes up the stairs instead of out the door or goes to look for at the sound or, or figure out what the sound is instead of actually just like leaving but in this case it was hard to be like mad at her because it was like oh she's like doing this for a really good reason like she wants to help her friends and i i respect and admire her for that but i'm also we know as the audience we want to be like just no they're dead anyways get out of there <laughs> which is horrible i mean it's a horrible thing to think keith also pointed out he was like man i wish she had had was holding that that uh uh, what was it? What are those things? Um, it's like a for the fireplace. Uh, she grabs a, a fireplace poker. Is that what yeah, they're called? Yeah. I have no idea. Sorry. No. Uh, she grabs it. And she's like holding it in this way. It's like really up up close to her body. It's not like she should hold it out like a sword. Like you know a what spear. I mean? <laughs> yeah, man, get ready. Ready for no, some but stabbing. Heart. Yeah. <laughs> This and we, scene is so amazing. I just wanted to preface. This is like the, I mean, we're at the climax, obviously, but this is one of the, like, I think one of the coolest chase scenes, like in a horror film that I've still ever like seen. The creep factor is, Ugh. oh my God, I have mm, not been mm, like unnerved mm. by something like that in a while. And it uh, was just an uh, eye. It's just his creepy, gross, murdery eye. Yeah, it's one of the I most- one of the most iconic shots of the movie is just that eye framed and by he's whispering. He's whispering and he has a creepy eye. Whispering, creepy eye. Yeah, it's and, and his eye is like just like it was in the other shot. It's like so freaking open. It's just such a big eye. Like whoever they cast, I'm like genius. And the brilliant. Color. You like oh yeah, the such a vibrant, like blue. Is it blue? I thought it was brown. Oh maybe maybe you know what honestly I have no idea. It just it felt very bright, whatever the color was. It's like very It almost 
almost looked marbled or something because it looked yeah. like several mm-hmm. different shades of one color. You're right. You're right. It's ethereal, like otherworldly, which makes it even more creepy. Yeah. It almost looked demonic to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the mm-hmm. derangement mm-hmm. that's just yes. radiating yes. out of it. Yeah. He's yes. scary. Yes. Yeah. He's and real so, scary. No, I literally wrote in my notes, ew, the eye. The eye. And in, in the chasing too, like after that, like when he's chasing her, Heath, Heath pointed this out too. Like we're just sort of seeing his feet and we're hearing him breathe and he's like the, the way he like kind of breathes and sort of growls when he's chasing her again it's like it's not human you feel like it's a demon chasing her almost I mean that's yes yes and then I he said something and I, I I've been quoting him a lot but he's really funny he kind of, it's so true he's like I don't understand why in horror films people can't open doors <laughs> it's so true because just for some reason can't get out the front door and it's like wait a minute you just open it a minute ago what's wrong well so the confused. door the door has some problems mrs mack in the beginning says yeah. we have to get the somebody to fix the door i've called him about it a hundred times so, oh so they the moral of they the cover here their... is make sure your doors are always in working order because you never know when a murderer is going to get in that's true they did cover their bases you're absolutely right um with with that mention of the door at the beginning because a lot still, of times it's true i concur with what he <laughs> said because so many times it's like the most innocuous of things become mm-hmm. so de- it's like getting keys in a car oh my god the keys yeah when keys to a door that's always or to a car it's like and i'm thinking i'm like talk to judge because when you're panicked you're panicked you know it it, it, it's it's got to be hard but it was so unfortunate she couldn't just run out the door um because of course then she has to go into the basement it's kind of like in an infomercial where a really basic task but they're like it's like they're pouring a cup of coffee but all of a sudden they just start pouring it all over their arm Mm -hmm. are you okay or like you know they're trying to take a piece of bread out of the bag and they're like, oh, I can't. Yeah, bread starts flying everywhere. That's kind of what people are like in horror movies. This menial task has bested me. Yes, yes, it's so true. But yeah, so, so that was true. a great segue though because yeah, she does. She gets chased down into the basement which is equally crowded with creepy stuff. I'm telling you, attics and basements. Like, and- let's just get rid of them, all of them. I'm going to start a petition for that. Yeah. Remove yeah. them all. Nothing yeah. good comes from an attic or a basement. Actually, that's not true. I think basements can be really good like in storms, I know. so. But like finish them. Don't leave them like creepy. Like finish, <laughs> finish them, them, make them a room. <laughs> Don't leave creepy stuff in your attic or your basement. That's my petition. Yes, 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 yes. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's none of my business. but Build I like out your like, basement. <laughs> you're inviting bad things to happen if you like leave a bunch of junk in either one. Yes. My grandma's basement in Iowa wasn't finished out. It was so scary. And in the summertime, oh. they have little grass snakes everywhere. And so if you would go downstairs, you could see the snakes like stick their head out because it was just dirt walls and we weren't allowed to go down there (laughs) (laughs) and then in the winter it was freezing and scary and our cousin lived down there and it smelled weird yeah (laughs) we weren't allowed to go down there but it kind of it had an odor it had a musk it could have been a murder basement i don't know so peter shows up but at first you don't know it's peter because you just see this male form at this really dirty window and he starts a frosted window i don't know if it's dirty frosty combination but he starts like wiping it off and then you slowly see that it's peter and and it's like the timing of that I'm like yeah. what in the world like, yeah you can't not be the murderer you're definitely killing people right you have you have to be the murderer at this point like there, there's 
no way. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's how tiny. I felt the first time I saw it. I was just like, it's got to be Peter. It has to be. This is it's too perfect. Like my logic brain told me it wasn't because I know how horror movies go. But, exactly. But yeah. I did. I, I was like, oh yeah, it's fully you. Oh my god. Yeah. But, yeah. Again, the timing is insane. And you know, the obviously the the cops come, and then we see that obviously before that. Sorry, he he breaks the window too, which is like so creepy in and of itself. I'm like, did you not? You could have probably gone through the front door. That door isn't locked, obviously. <laughs> like, why are you breaking into the basement? Like that that also was really confusing and made him seem more guilty. Yo, that's a good point because it's like, did she scream or anything? Could he have heard a struggle? Because I don't remember. Maybe, I maybe. don't remember any of that. But also, like again, why wouldn't you have tried the front door? Maybe the front door was broken. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's but what still, it is. But it, it, your go-to is yeah. to break the window. Well, and again, she's in panic mode. She's in fight, fight or, or flight. flight. Sorry, <laughs> I was like. I was like trying to put the word fright in there for some reason. (laughs) Fight or flight mode. And so it's totally understandable that she would be like, there is no literal way that it's not Peter at this point. Because there's already been a lot of clues that have made her uncomfortable and think it could possibly be him. And so then when we see shortly after that Jess has killed Peter, because the shot is the cops come in and see that Peter's dead and she's obviously like bludgeoned him or hit him. I mean, she's passed out. Yeah. Like we assume we're like, oh, yeah, well, Well, you know, he probably obviously... She looks dead too when they initially come down so yeah you're like oh crap you're right yeah did they yeah. kill each other yeah yeah you're right and then uh. we see that no she's actually alive and peter is dead and so the cops are like oh this is all wrapped up nice and neat they give her mm-hmm. a tranquilizer put her to bed and then like leave one cop do do, do they even okay. leave uh. one person no laura Ray, do you have something to say <laughs> no 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 go ahead <laughs> okay no because again the most inept law enforcement agency i have ever freaking scene because it's like all these people in this room with her including Claire's dad like they still haven't found Claire's body or Mrs. Mack no one's looked in the attic and so they found Phil they found Barb obviously so they have Claire's dad in the room with Jess while she's passed out with the doctor and the police officers and then he goes into shock then everyone just leaves her in this house alone with one police officer guarding the front door you are absolutely right it is I was telling Heath that I was like it's still shocking me watching this part because I mean I it shouldn't because if you watch the whole movie yeah the, the cops have been mostly all failing miserably this whole film but this is an enormous fail and Heath agreed that they didn't check every single room including the attic I can't believe they didn't check the attic and that's I mean that's really what lets the killer get away you know obviously yeah. <laughs> and that's how we find out it's not Peter the pan shot around the house oh. as they go into the different rooms mm-hmm. my heart was was mm. racing it was mm-hmm. so scary because you yes. didn't know where he was yeah and at and, first and and it was just so ominous because it was just like you said a slow pan to each room and it's letting that dread build like the dread yeah. is building we're like oh no oh wait a minute what does this mean and then we start to hear this very faint 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 laugh as they pan to like the outside of the attic and i was like Ugh. no the first time i saw it i was like no, no. it wasn't peter holy crap <laughs> yep. And so you know the killer is still inside the house and he has evaded all law enforcement that have been all over that house. But clearly uh, not enough. And so man. the last scene is the front of the house. It's very similar to the beginning, which mm-hmm. is just a front shot of the house. At this mm-hmm. time, all the lights are off and the one police officer is guarding the front door, doing a great job keeping everybody in and out. <laughs> and in. then the phone starts ringing. And I don't know, did you guys pick up it rang 13 times? Oh, no. I didn't, I didn't get count. that. Ooh, 
I didn't creepy. count either. I, I read it somewhere, so don't think that I'm that. Oh. <laughs> I'm that good at my job. <laughs> I love that. I I I love that the last sh- shot we can like faintly hear the phone ringing. It's so freaking ominous. Ugh, so, I love it. Do you think Jess was murdered? You know I'll what I think. You. I, you know what I think is great. I think it's great that we don't know because the last shot was not Billy creeping into her room. If if we had had a killer point of view shot of him like coming out of the attic and like going into her room, I'd be like, dang, bye, Jess. Uh, yeah. you, you had a real good run. But I I like that we we don't know um, because she could he could have spared her. He you know obviously clearly has has so much wrong with him, and we we can't even begin to know how you know how psychotic he is so he he maybe stayed in the attic for a while with his you know his poor Claire victim that he was like rocking and singing to maybe he just like chilled up there for a while and then they came back to get Jess in four hours and you know she got away like I I I like to think that it could go either way I don't want to just assume no matter what that she's dead the odds aren't really in her favor (laughs) but yeah. No, I think that there, that was something too that I kind of picked up on was I didn't feel like the immediate sense of doom. Like it felt like, right. oh shit, she's in a bad situation and I don't know how she's going to get out of it. But mm-hmm. it didn't immediately feel like, well, she's dead. It definitely left it open. Like you said, like maybe he was just up there with his with his uh, victims, just like doing his thing and rocking them and just like because some, up there. Because as we've seen in the film, sometimes he was very sort of like, you know, lullaby, like sort of like kind of, I don't want to say chill. That is not the correct word. More kind of, I guess, calm. (laughs) Calm down. In his, calm down in his, you know, psychoticness. But then other times he was like crying and like screaming when he was rocking her and he was in like a really like heightened state. And he was in one of those more calm states. So I feel like that gives Jess a a chance. If people hadn't freaking left her 100%, like I feel like Jess would have like gotten out of there. They had eventually figured, found him or he would have, or Billy would have just left entirely. Kind of like, you know, Bob Clark, talked about with the sequel like maybe billy would just will just leave or they'll find him put him in a site no i guess that that's what it was they find him put him in a in, uh put him in a psychiatric unit and then he breaks out of that so i feel like she she has a chance but but they they, they left her they, they did not do her a lot they of favors left her drugged so <laughs> i have a drugged. question for you guys well i have a thought and a question my thought is maybe if nobody answers the phone he'll think everyone's gone he'll think everyone's gone or maybe it doesn't start this cycle the state oh Oh, maybe so so. because he yeah he's prompted a lot of times by he gets like kind of you know agitated and amped up by those phone calls so you're right maybe he won't go kind of looking if nobody answers the phone there must be a phone in the attic that's anyways that's that made me think of part of my question is is there a phone in the attic is that him calling the first call they say it's the moaner again has he been calling them or did he just start calling them when he got into the house that night? Were there obscene phone calls before coming from him or from somebody else and they just assumed it was the same person? So he sought out that sorority house. So my thought is maybe he was calling from somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he knew, he, he knew, yeah, very demented. He knew where he was headed. So even if he wasn't calling from in the house initially, like he headed there and then found a phone and it didn't necessarily have to be in the attic. Now that I think about it, he can very easily get out of that attic and like maneuver to other rooms so so he texted me i wanted to 
say really quickly that I don't know if you've said this yet, but Silent Night, Evil Night was the original title of the film. The film had a lot of titles that it went yeah. through. Silent Night, and, Evil Night. And then he said, they tell cops there's another phone in the house, but it's a different number. Oh, there. so there's a phone. It's in Miss... I think it's a miss like Max room maybe or or in somebody else's room that's a totally different number so they never tapped that phone but there oh. must be phone there, so there's there must be phones in like certain rooms They're that are all lines. yeah some of them are the same line which is the one they tapped and then there's at least one that's a separate line good point I know you mentioned this. It's a Canadian film. Like, and he said, like, better watch out, which I know I've told you guys about that film, which we really love. It's another really fun horror film. Awesome. Um, I'm about halfway through that one right now. We were watching it last night, but it got late and we had to go to bed. So I haven't finished it yet. Totally. It's a horror comedy, kind of. I think we've all seen the 2019 remake. So if you're interested in watching that and you don't want any spoilers, this is the time to stop. I think that movie in particular for me, like I really loved, because that was written and directed by a woman. I loved the way she approached sexual assault and women reclaiming their power and mm-hmm. holding people accountable. Yeah. And I thought it did really well. Laura and I talked about this until the very end when it got a little fantastical. Agreed. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. Because it's I, like, I feel like yeah. it would have been so much more powerful had it just been the reality. And that's a thing I've been having a lot with movies lately is especially ones about women and like different forms of like the loss of a child or sexual assault or something like that. There's so many movies that I've seen that have been like, oh, is it this thing? Is it real or is it all in her mind? Like, is it the Babadook or is it her grief? So often, especially if they're male writers, I've noticed that they'll go with the fantastical thing. And I'm like, but no, I wanted to see how she really deals with this. Like, this is a real thing. And this was the yeah. same type of thing for me. It's it's good. It's about these women taking on these issues on their college campus. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it's these guys have magical powers because they found this black goo in the bust of the founder of the college and it gives the guys super strength or something which I think it's like supposed to be some kind of metaphor about the patriarchy and like systemically like how that benefits men and all of you know like the boys club stuff but it's like don't give Mm -hmm. the fucking cop out of like oh it's a magical evil goo that makes them like this it's like no people can be human and people can be shit it's possible it is not extraordinary to be an asshole you're absolutely right I thought it would have been a much stronger choice if it was just this fraternity being like, hey, we're just going to kill these girls. Because we can't. Yeah, because we're dudes and we feel like we have this power. And then, because I love the final fight scene where the girls actually take them out. But it was Mm -hmm. just like, we don't, we don't need this other fantastical goo bit yeah but anyway this movie is directed by Sophia Takala and is written by her and April Wolf and it stars Imogen Poots Alisa Shannon Lily Donahue Brittany O'Grady Caleb Eberhardt I feel exactly the same way you guys I just want to say like just echoing what you guys said that I I enjoyed it I, I liked you know I, I liked that it was you know centered around female characters who were like you know and and, and that the, kind of the plot was like down with the patriarchy and that it was written and directed by a woman you could really f- uh, feel that watching it my biggest complaint and this is so stupid of me and it's like nerdy I think I've told you guys I just really wish it wasn't called Black Christmas because it's nothing like the original at all and that's fine it doesn't you know it, it's great that it's its own movie but the nerd in me is bothered 
because I'm like, no, it's not really a remake. It's like totally its own film. So just have another title. But that's, again, my, my own nerdy complaint. There. It could have been it could have been another holiday horror film that didn't necessarily yeah. have to be a reimagining because I think it was I think that probably is what they were going for like a reimagining of it or yes, an a loosely inspired thing. But yeah. it's like it could have been its own thing independent. They could have just been like, oh, this kind of harkens back to Black Christmas a little bit. I think it would have been sure. a much stronger movie had people like like you, Laura, that were expecting Black Christmas and they got something else. It would have probably I mean, well, a better response. Yes. And that's what I was going to say. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, and, and this, it's a minor complaint. What you guys are saying, those are like more legitimate kind of, kind of uh, critiques of like the, the script, which I completely agree with. And, and the ending, which I also thought was a little bit too fantastical. And, you know, I, I had been along for the ride until the end. And then I was kind of like, ah, but I do appreciate a lot about it. And I, you know, I'll tell you again, as somebody who watches a lot of horror films, if I can make it all the way through and find good things about it, that's really good with a horror film. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of them out there that I can't cannot even finish like that I will legit stop because they're like torture porn or because they're or there's a hundred other things that are massively wrong with them so right no and I think all critiques are valid because I think I think it brings up an important point what you bring up with the title because I think maybe the reception at least for people that that were fans of the original I think it wouldn't maybe have been a letdown you're right I'm sorry Heath has been texting me um tidbits which is really nice because my my husband's a big uh, movie buff even more so than I am I know we really need to get him on one day and get yes, him. Yes, he would, he would love that. Oh, I bet. No, we'll, we'll need to because I would, I'd be interested to get his take on something. We'll have to see if he can find something. Yeah, no, totally. I would love it. Or maybe we could be on together. That would be so oh, cool. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, no, I don't want to like um, insert myself, but um, <laughs> but I, I would love to. Anytime I can be on this podcast, I would love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't think there would be any, there would be too much fight from either one of us. <laughs> The remake or reimagining holds a, I think, a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, Wait. wow. I didn't know it was that low. Yeah, it's really bad for the 2019. Now, the 2006 is supposedly worse. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's this... It's like five or slow, the, the 2006. Yeah. This one, the 74 version, has a 75%. And it's regarded very well now. Like, it's a classic. People mm-hmm. love it. But when it came out... Well, it was a hit in Canada. But when it premiered here, it didn't go over very well. And this is a review from the New York Times in October 19. 19- 75 by A.H. Wheeler says Black Christmas which landed on local screens a year after its release in Canada where it was produced is a whodunit that begs the question of why was it made? The answer is hard to come by. This moody depiction of the Christmas slangs of university sorority sisters and their house mother among others is as murky as the script which dotes largely on obscenities that are no more pointed than the violence, dull direction, and pedestrian performances. Which I completely disagree with. Me too. That's really interesting. take a wild guess and say A.H. Wheeler was probably a dude. I think (laughs) so. But that was, it didn't do well here in America. And it was released under a different title. Then they re-released it the following year under Black Christmas. And it didn't do any better. Now over time, people have come to realize like how great it is. How influential it was. Like so many things I saw. I'm like, okay, this just feels too fresh to be redone. 
or to be a trope from somewhere yeah. else. So on that note, what rating would you give this Laura Ray? Well, I, it probably won't be a surprise to anybody that I definitely give it an A+. I will say that, it, you know, probably nostalgia plays a little bit into it because it's one of the first horror films that I like really scary horror films that I saw and that made a big impact on me. And like I said, I think it's part of the reason that I love horror films today. But then also just like technically, it's got a really strong script, in my opinion. It's got, like we talked about, interesting, fairly fleshed out, you know, characters, most of them, you know, female. Um, To me, it's really scary and unsettling. Um, Always, every time I see it, I'm reminded of how how frightening it is. But without being, like we've talked about, gory or really, you know, over-sexualizing or more importantly, without there being sexual, you know, violence in it. And particularly for the time period, that was, you know, that was, I think, really, like we talked about, it was very progressive for its time. And we've already talked about how it was really impactful for the time period and how it influenced a lot of the horror genre, particularly slasher films. Like you just, you know, like we talked about in the beginning, you see so many little, you know, pieces from this film in, in other future slasher films all the way up until now, like tropes that we see now, many of them, you know, maybe not were necessarily started with Black Christmas, but it was one of the better films that used, you know, some of these um, and therefore kind of carried on in the genre in a pretty important way. So yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, uh, We see it, we watch it like every Christmas. (laughs) So for a lot of the things you said, Lara Ray, like I completely agree with those. I think this is definitely an A, especially for the time period that it was, it was released in. I thought it was very amazing, well fleshed out characters for women that weren't all the same type of woman. Mm -hmm. We had Mm -hmm. all different kinds of people represented in these characters. I mean, it was it was hella white, um, which, you know, <laughs> might be, you know, my, I might refrain from the plus just for that. I thought the characters overall, I think it represented different types of women. It wasn't like one certain type. There were or people had problems. There was it was messy in places and it wasn't just these perfect women being perfect and mm-hmm. escaping murder because they were perfect. Yeah, I definitely give it an A and the thing that's keeping the plus from it is something that was of the times, but I can still f- critique it, and that is that it was super white. You know, we could have had super white some some characters of color in there, but it was the seventies, so the fact that it is progressive as it is is you know pretty amazing. And yeah, I think that it's like like saying that is just like that is the critique. I think for me on the whole thing because it's entertaining as shit it's so fun to watch like I was Mm -hmm. fully engaged from the moment I turned it on I liked the characters the writing was well done it was progressive for the time like I mean I don't think there's going to be a perfectly feminist progressive horror movie until we get more women in Hollywood yeah like you said I think that is the critique for me I think I would have liked to have seen more representation for different kinds of people and I guess maybe too how they made a joke out of Mrs. Max alcoholism See, I mean, yeah, but if I was going to take if I was going to take issue with anything in the movie, it would have been the rape joke or not the rape joke, but darling, you can't yeah. rape a townie. And that three critiques and movies that come out nowadays, I have way more critiques with. Yeah, so so this list. is yeah. definitely an A. Yeah, def- definite yeah. A. Because I mean, and and it's an A almost completely for me. And like, if you take away the fact that it's entertaining and it's well well written and all of these things, 
Just the fact that you have such a progressive film made in the 70s. By men. I know. By men. Like, the fact that I'm not sitting here going, oh, you know a man wrote this. Like, it's actually... So true. Yeah, it's a well-done piece. So, and it's... So, I mean, that's saying something. Absolutely. That's really all very good points. You're you're absolutely right. Lack of diversity is a shame. And and that is a good reason to critique but it. It's, um, it's, but this movie isn't the exception to that. You know what I mean? It's of course, kind of something right. that's run into a lot in these, these films. And that's... That's not just on these filmmakers. That's on society. Definitely. I one something. One other thing I want to mention is I meant to mention it earlier. Is this movie came out I think like a year after Roe versus Wade, which is another thing that was um, oh. interesting about you know the fact that there was kind of a central you know topic around abortion. And, and again, like I said, going back to what we have already said, I I just think it's so it, it was something that was so impactful to me at the time and and still is because we just don't see it very often. It being a topic of discussion in a film and just like you said, Lacey, where there's not like there's not a judgment on the character that's choosing to get an abortion yeah like i said no villainizing her no judgment it's just it is what it is and she's made that decision you know and that's how it should be but unfortunately we don't get to see that that often do you have a recommendation yeah so you know i was thinking about it a lot and so it follows is a it's a horror film it came out i want to say in either 2017 or 2018. Have you guys seen it? Yes. So the reason I picked it follows is because I was looking for, I was like, okay, a horror film where the word that comes to mind is unsettling, where it's like a slow burn that builds dread, but where there's not a ton of like gore. And that was one of the first ones that was like popped in my head. If you like that style, if you found, you know, if you like the, the, the kind of the building of tension, the slow dread, the not a lot of shock effects, not a lot of gore, but a really good script and a really interesting story, I think it follows is a really, you know, a good horror film to check out. Um, it's it's still one of my favorites in recent years. So so yeah, that, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, just following up on that, I, I pull up some stats. It Follows came out in 2014. It's R rated. Oh, it stars Micah Monroe, Kier Gilchrist. Oh, another Kier. There was a Kier in this film. Um, Olivia Lucardi and Lily Sepp. Directed by David Robert Mitchell. And it was written by David Robert Mitchell. And that's it. So it was written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. I cannot believe it was 2014. I feel like a silly goose that I, for some reason, thought it was more recent than that. That just goes to show you the time is all blurring together. I didn't think it was that long ago. <laughs> the reason I remembered it was I think it came out right after Carl and I got married. Aw. Very nice. It came out the month before we got married because we saw it and we all were making jokes about the sex ghost and how this is the greatest argument for to get your kids to be um, abstinent. It's like you take your kids to go see this. You're like, look, if you have sex, a ghost will follow around and murder you until you have sex with somebody else and pass it on. A lot of people called it like a demon STD, um, which I thought was also also a pretty funny way of describing it. (laughs) No, that movie's awesome. Y'all also told me that I walk like the sex ghosts. How does the sex ghost? I don't remember how this... I'm going to have to look that up. I don't know, but when we were coming out of the theater, you and Carl and... Brian, probably. I think we were with Brian. We're like, look, Laura walks just like they do. And then for like weeks, y'all wouldn't let me live that down. What? Sorry. (laughs) Sorry you walk like a sex ghost. I like calling them sex ghosts. That makes them not as scary. Instead of walk like an Egyptian, walk walk like a sex ghost. (laughs) Sex ghost. So I have two. So I do think that if you haven't... um, seen it I do think you should give Black Christmas the 2019 reimagining a watch because I do think it it deserves some attention because it is written and directed by women stars all women and it's about a group of women 
taking back their power after men are awful. Yeah, there's some fantastical bits. It, it definitely has some critiques and doesn't work in areas. It's definitely just okay, but still, I think it should be given given some attention because of what it is and how difficult it is to get an all-female produced movie made. True story. Yeah. So, Amen and, to that. So again, that's Black Christmas. It was released in 2019. It was directed by Sophia Tikal, written by Sophia Tikal and April Wolf, and it stars Imogen Poots, Elise Shannon, Lily Donahue, and Carrie Elways. And then my second recommendation is actually a recommendation for myself. It's another movie that uses the call is coming from inside the house. And I think this one might even be a little bit more famous or well-known than Black mm-hmm. Christmas. That is When a Stranger Calls from 1979, mm-hmm. directed mm-hmm. by Fred Walton and written by Fred Walton and Steve Feek or Feck. I'm not sure how to say that. And then it stars the amazing Carol Kane, Charles Durning, and Rutana Alda. And the premise is a psychopathic killer terrorizes a babysitter, then returns seven years later to menace her again. That one's mm-hmm. been on my watch list for a long time. So this is my ref- uh, reminder to me to watch it. I want to see that one too. So thank you for reminding me. It's good. I liked it. And I've also heard the sequel, A Stranger Calls Back, is really good, but I've never seen that one. What a great title for a <laughs> That's so good. The Stranger Calls Back. So I also have two. I'm sorry, guys, but they are very different. So my first one goes in the Christmas horror genre, but it also ties back into the, and I hate this term, but the hag horror from- from earlier this year when we covered Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And this one is from 1971, and it's Who Slew Auntie Rue? Or if you're in England, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. It's directed by Chris Harrington, an original story by David D. Osborne. The screenplay is by Robert Blees and Jimmy Sancter? Sure. It stars Shelley Winters, Mark Lester, Chloe Franks, and Sir Ralph Richardson. This is a 1971 horror thriller based partly on the fairy tale Hansel and Gretel and it focuses on a demented American widow living in her husband's English manor who becomes obsessed with a young orphan girl who resembles her dead daughter. I watched this one for the first time a few months ago and it was so much fun. It's very odd but I liked it. Nice. That sounds that's a great title. Uh, Yeah yeah it is. I like the uh, alliteration of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then my second recommendation is the 1991 movie All I Want for Christmas, directed by Robert Lieberman with a screenplay by Tom Eberhardt and Richard Kramer. It stars Harley Jane Kozak, Lauren Bacall, Thora Birch, Ethan Randall, and Leslie Nielsen as Santa Claus. And Andrea Martin. And Andrea Martin. Perfect. And this is a very family-friendly one. Lacey and I love this movie. We watch it almost every year. It's about a brother and sister who attempt to bring their divorced parents back together for Christmas. Spoiler alert. It works. Yeah. It's just super fun. Musical Cats is referenced in it. Like a bunch. (laughs) It's where I first heard of Cats, and and Cats ended up being the first Broadway musical I ever saw because I rented it from the library. It also has them going to the Nutcracker in it, and it made us really want to go see the Nutcracker. It's like all the things about Christmas in New York that you think about. So like they go to the Nutcracker, they go see a Broadway play, they play Mm -hmm. in the snow, they trap um, their mom's ex-boyfriend in a freeze truck, It's a freezer truck, it's fine. Like everything (laughs) you think about when you think about New York. There's a really awesome 1950s diner in it they go to a cotillion 
Yeah, it's great. And yeah, Andrea Martin is in this movie. And I was like, two Christmas movies for Andrea Martin. Yay! Boop, 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 boop. I love that. That's our episode. Thank you. Thank you, Laura Ray, for being with us. Thank you, guys. This was a blast. And uh, next time you're with us, we can have Baby Ray on, too. <gasps> oh, my gosh. That's true. <laughs> Coming in January 2021. Coming soon. Yeah, coming soon to a podcast to my near home. you. I was going to say a home near you, but then I was like, that sounds creepy. It's, coming it's my home. Coming soon to a <laughs> pair of arms belonging to Laura Ray near you. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I like that. Merry Christmas, guys. Happy holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. We will be back for another Horror for the Holidays episode before the end of the year. Oh, and our wonderful Horror for the Holidays Christmas Carol is written by none other than Carl Gonzalez. Hey, I know him. Yeah, he's been on the show before. He also wrote our theme song. So real quick, I just want to say a big thank you to Carl for writing our theme song and a big thank you to Doug McCambridge from Good Times Great Movies for our lady in the veil black and white logo mysterious lady with a terrible secret logo yes <laughs> and i edit everything so we can add stuff in if we need to. thank me oh yes thank you okay. <laughs> that was so awesome thank i love that me so thank me all right For- everybody say bye bye, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemmespodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.